0: David M. Roundtree is the Chief Science Advisor for Scientific Paranormal Investigative Research Information and Technology, or SPIRIT Lab. Dr. Stephen Rourke has lectured on developmental psychology, cognition, theoretical and applied physics, and EVP, that'd be electronic voice phenomena, as a subset of ITC, Instrumental Transcommunication with potential implications for the theoretical physics community regarding the existence of multiple dimensions beyond the standard model. Dr. Rourke's most recent study includes the application of information theory, persuasion theory, and certain aspects of psychology to the paranormal, i.e. paramimetics. These two gents work together, but they've never done a radio show together, as they revealed to us at the end of this, so this episode is monumental, In the interview portion, as well as the after chat, get ready for what I believe is one of our best episodes top to bottom, uh, even if it ends in unfortunate sadness at the bottom. Paratopia, here is the final episode with Jeff and I as co-hosts. Well, Paratopia, without further ado, please welcome Dr. Stephen Rourke and David Roundtree. Gentlemen, we are, of course... Well, first of all, let me just say, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks, thanks for, for having me. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is interesting because, you know, we just mentioned that we were going to change our format, and uh, you were among the first people to email us and say, hey, we'd like two hours. And we said, well, we'll give you your two hours, but why don't you come on and chat with us, too? Uh, so thank you for doing this.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Um, and we want to get into, um, of course, your spirit material, but before we do that, I think Jeff uh, has a round of questions just purely about the technology and the science behind what you're doing.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, David, I'm curious. I had heard you on our dear friends over at Erie Radio some time ago. You got to talking a little bit about the technology that you are using to – I mean you're looking at everything from free air conductance to radioactive emissions and magnetic fields and electromagnetic fields surrounding – what we think is paranormal phenomena, but you're also looking at stuff like, uh, you know, injecting um, energy like it, via Tesla coils into um, an area to observe what effect that may or may not have. Right. And I am, uh, I'm curious where all that is taking you or, or what you're gleaning out of that.
3: Well, um, I don't think two hours is enough go over the journey. But, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the whole thing started, when I started out, first of all, in 1976, technology was like in the Stone Age. I mean, I basically lugged around a 70-pound a A4010S reel-to-reel, right. a couple of big, bulky government mine detectors that had been, uh, Army mine detectors that had been rewired to be passive receivers. Um, I mean, it, it, the list goes on and on. It took a small U-Haul truck, you know to carry the equipment around. Right. Um, now, with technology the way it is, you can carry in a backpack uh, an entire laboratory, essentially. Uh, but to move ahead a little quicker, um, my whole concept was is to in, look at the environment around these type of activities and try to measure and record and monitor as much about the environment as absolutely possible and do that in real time during a paranormal event in order to uh, put into perspective exactly what's going on in the world around us when these things are occurring. Now, that led to a really in-depth study of electronic voice phenomena uh, and a detailed analysis, as well as um, experiments with mediums as to how they get their information, where that information possibly may come from, to uh, actually finding rudimentary evidence of a potential wormhole connection to the whole paranormal phenomena. And I mean everything from cryptozoology all the way through to the garden variety ghost. So uh, a lot of it is connected in the ways that it affects the environment, but I think that connection that we're seeing is actually a reflection of what is actually – Creating the opportunity for it to happen, not so much as the paranormal activity itself. I think probably maybe 10% of what we're actually seeing is the actual paranormal activity, and the other 90% is what facilitates that behavior to manifest itself in our environment.
0: Do you both agree on that? And if so, did you both come to the same conclusions uh, through the same work? Dr.
3: Orc and I see things very similarly. I mean, we perceive things. In a very similar manner, and we actually uh, try to take it apart and digest it in a very similar manner so i and then uh, of course, Steve, you can talk for yourself
1: well oh, yeah, and I would say uh, uh mostly in agreement, although you know David and I have been having a conversation for years, and it's still ongoing, so there's particular points but I would say um, you know in in the in the gross features of what you just brought up, yeah we uh We agree, and um, we arrived at it through, I would say, pretty much the same habit of mind. Um, And whereas David uh, has come to appreciate you do not underplay the environmental factors that contribute to the observance or the actual occurrence of paranormal phenomenon, um, I've come to appreciate that we shouldn't underplay or, or fail to appreciate how important uh, cultural constructs and beliefs are, and uh, and how really any proposed definition of the word paranormal that fails to acknowledge the deep-seated personal belief systems, which are really inherently connected to its uh, concepts, I think, has missed the point. Mm-hmm. So we come yeah, from yeah. it, really, maybe from the same habit of mind, but uh, attempting to complement each other.
3: Yeah. Steven actually has a more in-depth concept of the mind and its reaction to this uh, phenomena and where I have more of the actual technical experience of the field manifestation and measurement. So he deals more with the perception and perceived notions that this type of activity creates in the human psyche. And, And between the two of us bouncing these things back and forth between us, we correct each other often. I mean, we alter each other's perception and our own work. I think, and in and, and that aspect, we make a very good partnership.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it and, sounds like it sounds like you guys have the uh, you, you've definitely got the technology into things covered. And you have definitely have the human mind part of things covered. How far do you go back into what we've talked about on the show a lot, which is the notion of. Uh, Marginality and anti-structure within manifestations of paranormal events, such as what that person who has the haunted house, uh, what's going on in their life at that point, um, what what the circumstances were surrounding a paranormal event, not just you know the, their perception of what they saw or didn't see, uh, but more along the lines of uh, – I don't know, more along the lines of that tr- whole trickster thing where we're talking about uh, – you know, what, 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 what is surrounding the event as opposed to the event itself?
3: Well, Mm -hmm. I'll I'll take a baton on this first. Um, first of all, when you do an investigation, you have to really look up what that word means and then practice that. Um, and what I mean by that is I, I was a police officer for about five or six years of my life. And, uh, During that period of time, I also became a crime scene investigator and and handled forensic evidence and actually built cases. So I take that same set of skills and apply it to my own research into the paranormal. So I actually have two segments of my research. Part of it is the academic research and the field research and experimentation. And the other part is the actual investigation of the environment and of the actual casework itself. And that's handled just like a criminal case. I mean, when we go into a situation, we handle everything as if it was going to court, even though it doesn't. But in a way, it will go to court, and that's the court of public opinion. So we have a rule on the investigation team that we have to come up with a preponderance of evidence to reach a conclusion that there is something paranormal going on. And we only reach that conclusion 7 or 8% of the time in all the cases that we deal with. We often eliminate a lot of things that are going on due to uh, natural, everyday, explained you know, occurrences that are going on in the home. Uh, high radon levels, abnormally high EMF coming off the electrical service, right. uh, you know, high levels of carbon monoxide, uh, history of, of mental illness. Uh, you go and you do an in-depth background, and you also do an in-depth history study of both the property and the house and the region where, where it's occurring. So, you have to get all of this data together in order to come to some conclusion at the end of gathering your actual evidence during the case. Um, you can leave no stone unturned yeah. and and that's not being done
2: <laughs> right well, yeah, yeah, that's the other part I was going to get to, which was um, i I think everybody at this point pretty much knows how I view the u f o community, but um how do you? And we've been at we've been asking this just about to every you know ghost minded person that we have on investigators, theorists, and what have you. Um, how, how do you see the, the state of of the field that you're in? Um, do you see yourself almost as separate from it? Um, do you see well, that I it's sure a, so. a a huge mess? <laughs> well, I mean, do you see it, it as a big mess?
1: Yeah, right. well Go I'll ahead. I'll take this one first. I, I sure hope I'm separate from it.
2: Because
1: um, <laughs> uh, there is as you know, there's a uh, fair degree of lunacy associated with um any interest in fringe subjects. And I think that is part of the fascination from a psychological standpoint. But uh to be to be real clear, there uh to the degree that that any of this uh you know, these folks interested in this, to the degree that their loose affiliation can be called an organization, uh-huh. you could you could say that um, uh, to the same exact degree there's organizational pathology.
2: Uh, okay. David, what do you have to add to that?
1: Well,
3: th- there's actually two kinds. Well, there's probably more, but there's two major subsets of quotation mark uh, paranormal investigator and quotation mark there are the um, what I want to call the populist groups and these are the groups that uh, have little or no formal training um, see something on TV buy some equipment Mm -hmm. and go out and hunt for ghosts and probably about ninety percent of the field is made up of those now there's nothing wrong with that and I, I think that it's wonderful that people are getting involved and hopefully they'll Actually discover something that can be, you know, added to the field and, and I don't want to, you know, talk down about them or anything else. Um, but that's one level. If they, you know, th- there's a lot of mistakes that are made at that level for various reasons. Um, then there's an intermediate level and those are people who have, uh, some formal training. They have some background, but they tend to not remain objective in their investigative techniques. And so while they uh, are a little step ahead as far as technology and implementation and understanding what they're getting, they're oftentimes trying to fit the data or the evidence into their preconceived notion of what's going on. Um, and then there's, like, a very small percentage that's actually at the top that's doing, you know, blazing trails as far as making discoveries and doing and doing stuff um, and and I can probably count them on both my hands, uh, if, if I were you know if if I were pushed to name names. I mean I I don't believe that I could fill up both my hands with the people that are doing it. But the, but the ones that are doing it are very good. Um, you don't hear from them. Tim Hart, for example. Uh, uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of him. He he came up and founded a, a thing called the Mesa Project in which he was the first person in his small team to actually monitor effects of a paranormal event in real time with data logging technology. And he basically measured 12 different uh, data points during an actual paranormal event. He pioneered it, wow. um, and very few people know about him. Um, so, but he is right there on the cutting edge. But like I say, you know, the people that are actually doing this, they are few and far between.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, when we
3: do find each other, it's very rewarding.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure. I, I mean, here's the, here's the other big question that I'm sure is on every listener's mind at this point. Uh, is ghost investigation, uh, let's say, let's put it this way. They say that a lot of the chefs that you see on television aren't really the best chefs in the business. They're just mediocre chefs, but they got a TV show. How, so how would we apply that to uh, to ghost hunting?
3: Well, you're that's a leading question, isn't it?
2: <laughs> <laughs> just a little. Sorry.
3: <laughs> well, uh, I'm not a plumber, but I play one on TV. Oh, uh, there
2: it is. There it is. <laughs> no, I'm uh,
3: kidding. Uh, uh, you know, there's there's a whole uh, uh, mentality that goes along with it, and, and Stephen could probably go into that in more detail than I could. Um, but I can say that there are a lot of people that are out there in hopes of getting their own TV show. Right. And, and we all encounter them. Uh, and, you know, again, there's nothing wrong with that. But it depends on, you know, do you want to be a TV star? Do you want to find some answers? And there are two... I'm not saying they can't mix because I believe in the right circumstances they could mix with the right TV people, the right producers, the right team could actually present something that would be, you know, something you would put on the science channel or something like that. I do believe that. It's just not out there
1: right now. This may be a good opportunity for me to chime in and and connect to your point and almost kind of... Uh, clarify what I meant by organizational pathology. Because it sounds like um I'm attempting to like throw away um you know the uh the baby with the bathwater. And that's not at all my intention. I it's a simple observation that if you look at the way uh people deal with each other and the motivations that contribute to the hierarchical structures in these groups and the way they dissolve or resolve themselves in certain ways uh just the infighting um it just appears to me that all of these pathologies exist in a higher degree in these types of groups and uh, this is not an outrageous statement if you ask anyone who's been in these groups uh, they can tell you like wow yeah i mean it's just it's crazy stuff there's always this uh, power struggle and the infighting and the drama and uh so I, i don't think State that um, organizationally you know that there are, there are a lot of issues, um, and I think that 's a bottom up kind of thing I think it 's very inductive. I think it speaks to um, some of the individual psychological schema contributes ultimately to you know the organizational pathologies, and this is not a statement to just say i 'm sitting and people on a couch and calling them crazy right I'm simply stating a fact that there's not a whole lot of cohesion and there's um, you know, it's, uh, it, it, there really is more infighting. There's infighting to a higher degree than, than in almost any, any other type of, um,
2: well, yeah, I mean, y- uh, yeah. anti-structure I've seen. Yeah. Preaching to the choir here. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, for, for, us, uh, you know, we, we had George Hansen on the show some time ago, actually twice. And he views all of the infighting, the lack of cohesion of all of these groups and the fact that n- none of them last very long, uh, he attributes that to being part of how this phenomena works. That uh, this is not necessarily – I mean if, if you were to say to him there's a psychological dynamic within a group that just causes this to happen, uh, his answer to that would be, well, I think that's ridiculous to call that purely a psychological dynamic. Uh, That's reducing everything to the psychological, and there's certainly that component, but that the overall picture is one of an anti-structural relationship that we have to the paranormal. In other words, it's a toxic relationship, Uh, and so none of these groups last very long uh, simply because it's the dynamic of how this works. I mean, would you agree or disagree with that? Well, let me me give
3: you an example, too, uh, from personal experience. Since 1976, I have probably led 35 or 40 different groups of people,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and those groups of people have rotated in and out, and some of them I have never heard from again, and some of them I hope to never hear from again. Um, <laughs> um, but here's the, here's the problem. When you start an organization and then you open it up to the public and you let anybody come in, you are going to get a group dynamic That is, unless you are an absolute ironclad leader, very difficult to manage. Hmm. So, management breakdown causes infighting, and then there are the ego clashes, and that's what tears a group apart. Now, the group that I have right now has been in existence now for about six years with the same people. Wow. And we are all professionals, we're all specialists, we are all. With scientific backgrounds, we all have each an individual discipline, and we're all interested in the paranormal for different reasons based on our own uh, concepts with our own personal disciplines. So we come at it like a team of scientists, and that's exactly how we we reach it, and we are very successful and we're very cohesive because while we have two leaders, we have a co-leader, I have a co-director that works with me in the investigative end, and uh, we are all considered equals within the group. We do not add a new person without an open vote of, of the people involved. And then we usually have a person who comes in new, goes on several outings with us in investigations before they're allowed to join the group or become a permanent member because everybody has to be in agreement that it will be a cohesive match because team dynamics are, are, is the most imperative, important part of any organization and any endeavor that you're going to do. Right. and and that's lacking in a lot of these groups because they let anybody join.
2: Well, and then the other question for you is is how do I mean obviously I mean you've got a good team now but like you just said it's taken you 40 some odd groups to get to this point um at by the same token then how do you um how do you deal with other investigators that may or may not be on the same page that you are and therefore uh, may marginalize your work, may um, poo-poo your work. Um, I mean, David, just – I mean, going from your standpoint alone, I think you could pretty much stomp to dust just about anybody in this field as far as uh, solid data, uh, You know, e- even possibly duplicatable stuff. Um, but there's a whole other matter of then presenting that to the public in a cohesive way and then dealing with the feedback and or slash fallout from the public. So how have you been able to do that for all of these years and maintain, um, how do you, how do you continue to give a shit?
3: <laughs> um, well, first of all, I, I, that's not what keeps me going. I could care less what other people think.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: If I was concerned about what other people think, I would have gotten out of this field 30 years ago. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I have never given a public presentation that I didn't capture everybody in that audience, and they were on my side when they walked out the door. Right. However, the biggest problem comes from the Internet, from people who glance over something that you publish. And this is one thing about me. I put everything I do online. I tell you exactly how to duplicate the experiment, exactly what equipment was used, exactly what I found. I hide nothing. The only thing that I don't put out there are photographs because people will attack you and rip them apart. Mm -hmm. I don't put out – I put out very few audio recordings for the same reasons, because there are trolls out there who sit in their mama's basement in their their jockey shorts with (laughs) nothing better to do and no life, and they do their best to live vicariously through the Internet because they feel very brave when they're hiding behind a screen.
0: Now they have Uh, podcasts.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And there it is. (laughs) There you go. But, uh, but the thing is, is, I've been attacked numerous times. steven has been attacked numerous times. I consider the source. Yeah. You know, if they are attacking me, it's because they do not understand what I'm talking about. And that's fine. I mean, I go out of my way to try to reason with people. And believe it or not, I get probably 100 emails a day from people saying, hey, you're doing great work. I really love what you're doing. Or I get phone calls from people talking to me about it. They're trying to duplicate something. I help people out. I get emails from people all over the country who are having problems, don't have anyone near them, and they ask me for advice, and I try to help those people. But uh, one of those people that you help and that says thank you outshadows a thousand of the people who fight against you. Right. So the personal rewards way outweigh uh, uh, the nuisances that, that come with the field. Wow. I used can, to I, get really can I come
2: to five. your field now? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> What was that? I said, "Can I come over to your field? Because it ain't that way over here." <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, It didn't get that way overnight around me, but I, no, I, I, don't put up with, I don't put up with nonsense either. I mean, that's the whole thing. It used to really bother me. I used to fight. I used to, and I, I realized I was wasting so much time defending things to people that it didn't make any difference to anyway. Mm. That I was that my work was was you know you only have so much time. I have a family. I have other obligations. You only have so much time to devote to it. And when you're defending stuff to nitwits, it's a waste of time. And uh, and uh, finally, I just said, you know what, the hell with people, and I just disengage from them. And uh, that's how I handle it.
2: So the answer is, put your head down and do your work. I mean,
3: exactly. Yeah, don't stray far from the path.
2: Right. Right. Exactly. Well, I mean, Dave, we're. where have you gone with the EVP thing? I mean, what uh, if you get a good EVP and it's it's um, demonstrable that it's it's legit, uh, or you think it's legit? What are some of the things that you're noticing around um, around the capture of something like that in the environment? Because I I heard you mention on Erie uh, about a device that, um, and, and I'm probably going to explain it completely wrong, but I ever since I've heard about it, I've thought nothing. Uh, about ghost hunting, except I got to get me one of these. Um, that you, you set it across the two two objects. They're two devices. They're set across the room from each other, and they ping each other at a certain rate. Uh, oh, that's the time. That's that's the time slip
3: uh, detector. Yes. It's actually, what it is, it, it was actually a device that was, and I forget the guy who designed it, but the person who refined it was Jean-Louis, I can't think of his last name, a French physicist. He's actually working on alternative energy uh, uh, technologies right now, but it was originally designed to measure torsion fields. Okay. And how it works is you take two high-frequency, very, very stable oscillators, and you run them about uh, 12 feet apart, and they actually beat against each other, and there's a small comparator circuit that takes the difference in the two frequencies, even though they're supposed to be like you know, 900 megahertz, there's a slight differential on them due to manufacturing uh, inconsistencies. So you end up with an audio frequency differential that's, in my case, on my device, it's like 700 hertz. Okay. Um, so when you're running that, it stays at a constant 700 hertz because everything in the equation stays the same. But then when that frequency shifts, the only thing in the equation that is shifting is the time coefficient. So you're actually measuring a time differential. Something is occurring that's affecting time. You have a time anomaly occurring. And those things are are what started cluing me into there may be some kind of uh, opening that's occurring that's uh, destabilizing a very localized region uh, of our reality, so to speak, of our universe, and it's generally no bigger than a 20-foot area. And, and a lot of things go on in that 20-foot area. And the theory that, well, it's a hypothesis that I have right now is that an actual wormhole opens and allows this energy to propagate into our environment from points unknown. Okay. But that was one of the devices that is run when we're doing an investigation along with a lot of other devices. Now, a lot of the other devices I've put together, um, and not really designed, but have it's like an apparatus where you take off-the-shelf components, and you combine them to measure certain aspects. But uh, we try to measure EMF. We try to—I I just made a direction finder that allows me to triangulate the actual point of entry into a room where the, the EVP is coming in at, oh. uh, so that we can go to that specific point and start making measurements to see what's really going on, and and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, the. Uh, I, I can actually I think the schematic is actually on my website. Um I forget what paper I put it in, but it is actually on there. Um and there's a lot of stuff on the website that you know will give you step by step, you know, instructions to do it.
2: Yeah. But uh, this uh, is a
3: nice this is a uh, nice segue actually into Stephen's work with ITC because EVP and ITC are very tightly related. And and part of our argument that we have is is that ITC as practiced now is off the mark as far as actually going for EVP.
2: Okay, so Dr. Rook, go ahead and, uh, and, and launch into that. Tell us what that's all about.
1: Uh, well, David and I often discuss EVP as a subset of ITC only because of the, um, you know, the historic kind of order of discovery. But um,
0: did I miss it? what does i p c stand for
1: uh instrumental trans communication oh i okay. yeah but um you know i've i've got to say i'm I'm pretty um critical of a lot of the i t c work that's gone before, and I think what David's referring to is some of the modern day approaches have not really taken any advancements. There's no real steps further i mean some of the equipment's gotten slightly fancier but Um, that, uh, compounded by the problem that the, uh, the, the habit of mind has not become much improved either. And so there's this assumed kind of, um, explanatory schema going into, uh, much of the quote unquote experiments, um, where people are looking for confirmation, not information, um, so I I kind of would rather call ITC the kind of like a cult of techno mediumship, unless it's done properly. And again, I think as you've heard from David, you can, you know, if we had a magic wand and could take, imagine if you could sap crazy from the entire field, um, you'd probably have, you know, 12 people standing in the room.
2: Uh, Do not tease me, sir.
1: (laughs) No, yeah. But, uh, so, the point is that um our take on i t c is that it ought to be done a whole lot differently that there are best evidence standards regarding technology approach, data collection, and analysis that ought to be done and um you know without you know starting to sound like a lecture, I think people understand what we mean when we say that that there are certain um there are certain processes that ought to go on um, you know regarding people wanting to know what actually happened. There's a process you go through. Mm-hmm. And this stuff is really, you know, the subject matter is, it's outside the mainstream paradigm enough. Um, and so David and I have had plenty of discussions about how, well, how, how are we going to pull the people, uh, the resources needed, the brain trust, how are we going to attract those folks to solve some of these problems? I mean, he and I are pretty, you know, good on the chalkboard with equations, but there are people we would need um, to do uh, higher-order math. And how do you track them if if everything is done in a non-scientific way with a lack of a critical mind, uh, with that's this whole kind of vibe of crazy going on? You're never going to track those people. So that's our main appeal. Uh, and as far as the connection between ITC and EVP goes, we've decided – that EVP holds out the greatest promise as a subset of ITC holds out the greatest promise for um, meaningful data, and one because it is uh, it's extremely easy. And compared to the video slash audio data that ITC can produce, it's a whole lot easier to uh, analyze and collect. Um, plus, there are some. I mean, there's some exclusionary parameters right at the outset that make EVP pretty interesting because um, ordinarily folks who experience paranormal phenomenon, you can understand that um, it's usually considered something like, uh, you know, a phantom touch or presence or, mm-hmm. um, you know, the sleep paralysis is kind of a popular explanation, mm-hmm. right? But you can say that EVP you know, be it EMF or what someone might call an audio signal on a tape or something approximating human speech when no one was talking, let's just say. I mean, that's pretty objective, right? I mean, you can't say that that was a sensed presence or a hypnagogic hallucination. Well,
0: how do you rule out out, uh, radio signals things of that nature?
1: Oh, well, I mean, that would be David Struthers, so I'm going to turn it over to (laughs) you.
2: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because every everything with a battery and a wire, right, is an antenna. So, I mean, how do we, you know, how do we, how do we deal with that? I mean, David, I'll t- I'll tell you that uh, the two recorders that I've used for doing EVP are uh, a Zoom H4 and an H2. Am I completely screwing that up, or should I be using something else? What was it now? I'm, I, have uh, a hard time. I, I have I have a, a Zoom H4 and a Zoom H2, and both of them are pretty high end. Uh, digital recorders, um, wide-spectrum frequency stuff. I mean, should I be using something a lot narrower? Because I know a lot of people that, that oh, well, at, least, at least in popular media, tend to be using the tiny Olympuses and all that sort of thing, just like your regular memo recorders, which yeah,
3: yeah, these Zoom products are definitely not that. Yeah, those little voice recorders are horrible, and they add artifacts into the recording that can be mistaken for EVPs when they really aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, the best digital recorder you can get is the best way to go the microphones on the other hand are another story mm. how what e, what EVP actually is first of all to understand the whole concept of why ITC is off the mark you have to understand what EVP is to start with and it's not voice it's not audio it's actually an emf wave that's in the audio spectrum and since we don't speak to each other in the radio frequency band it's highly, it's highly doubtful that when we die, we sprout a transmitter and are able to modulate our, our voice onto a transmitter to transmit it on a broadcast band. Mm-hmm. Um, how it actually works is, even the cheapest dynamic microphone you can buy from Radio Shack, which is like 29.95 95 or something like that, is an excellent source for picking up EVP. And that's because... It doesn't go through the diaphragm of the mic, it actually excites the voice coil of the mic and moves the voice coil in response to the EMF wave, and that's what puts the recording onto your device. So the built-in microphones that you get are generally either condenser microphones or electret microphones. Condenser microphones won't pick up EVP at all um, because they work off the principle of changing capacitance uh, and there's no real change in capacitance associated with EVP. Um, however, an electret microphone will work to some degree because it is a polarized element, and it does respond to the change in the magnetic field that EMF creates. You know, it's a dynamic field. And uh, but the best microphone is a plain garden variety uh, dynamic microphone. I tend to use a, a Shure uh, SM58 microphone because it's you know, very good uh, microphone's got very fine voice coil wire, so it responds rather easily. But we have experimented with microphones with the diaphragm completely cut away just using the voice coil as a detector, and we've picked up EVP crystal clear with it. So in that aspect, as far as ITC is concerned, they're barking up the wrong tree. Mm-hmm. And we can go into in a little while after Steven spends more time on 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 the whole i t c concept, we can actually go into what I feel would be a very realistic way of creating an i t c device that has a higher probability of working
1: well you know it's this is a good segue because um we 've often had discussions about uh again you know attracting um, you know, the brightest minds to kind of bear upon the paranormal problem. Um, And we said, well, one tactic, one strategy might be to try to elevate some aspect of the phenomenon that has a great deal of um, replicability, some phenomenon that is easily falsified, and by that I mean it's eminently testable. And we thought, well, this would be a transition from paranormal to perinormal. And it's not something you hear advocated often, but it would be incredibly powerful in attracting folks from, you know, just this redefinition of terms and this elevation of, let's say, EVP from paranormal to paranormal. And what's an interesting overlap is a significant modern example of a paranormal phenomenon uh, is, in fact, EMF. Um, You know, at one time, uh, EMF was debatable from a scientific perspective, but it was later proven to be real. Um, and is currently accepted by the scientific community, right so sort into of this issue of of uh, is something paranormal or paranormal, and you don 't know until you address something called the measurability problem um, and I think David has conquered the measurability problem by confronting the issue that this is not you know voices this is this is e m and so the paranormal phenomenon, uh, obviously everyone knows what para means above, and that's why it's a strange phenomenon. But paranormal phenomenon really just describes unknown forces which at first appear to be paranormal and are later verified scientifically. And if David's experiments continue, well, I'd argue that EVP fits that description, even if not fully understood. One could argue lots of things that are uh, considered non paranormal are not fully understood. Um, I don't, we probably don't need to go here, but it seems like an open-ended conversation. You know, even fourth-dimensional, you know, this shadow matter that's evidence of a parallel universe, that, that really, I mean, while it's accepted now by the scientific community, this idea of parallel universes and, and all this, if it's not hinged on a religious notion of, you know, the plenitude of God and you can't restrict him, uh, if it's not hinged on that, it's it's certainly uh, parallel universes. Certainly a concept established by the metaphysical community. Um, you know, the Psychical Society uh, included physicists who later went on to win Nobel prizes, right. uh, including Sir William Crookes, uh, who whose invention led to um, uh, the cathode ray tube. Right. So oh. anyway, it's very it's. It, this is just an example of uh, of some of the stuff you'll see in BBC and science journals just this just this notion that it's very well established even though it's not eminently testable but it's very well established that our galaxy should have blown apart billions of years ago because you know the spin is too fast and uh, but what holds our own Milky Way galaxy together is this sphere of dark matter which surrounds it I mean think of you hear the words coming out of my mouth. I sound oh, so outrageous, and yet this is well, quote, well established. Um, you know, Hubble offers some maps. I know, and uh, but but this this eminently untestable dark matter sphere. You know, it's suggested it weighs ten times more than our galaxy, hence bringing everything into balance. You know, mm-hmm. um, and while the Hubble offers these these maps, which clearly is data, but even those maps concede, well, it's what should be, it should be matter, but it's dark matter, so it's like invisible matter. Anyway, it's it's suggested that this dark matter is really the matter in another uh, parallel universe. I mean, this is one suggestion by eminent physicists. Mm. So, if dark matter is an invisible matter that pervades the universe, which has um, gravity slash mass, then one could say that this shadow matter being matter from a parallel universe, having gravity freely going between universes and dimensions, as, you know, gravity is the warping of space, and it has real mass in another universe that is exhibited as measured gravity in our universe. And this stuff, it sounds so, I mean, it's convoluted, but this is considered, and I quote, well-established. So the notion that David measures these voice phenomenon as EMF to say that we can't elevate that to perinormal phenomenon and advance the field by attracting legitimate mathematicians and Mm -hmm. physicists is absurd. Of course it can be done, but what you got to do is get a proper scientific habit of mind. You've got to speak the language of the folks you want to attract and you've got to take the damn crazy out of the phenomenon you're studying, and that and that addresses the again not just the the individual kind of schema, but also the organizational pathology we discussed earlier.
2: Well, well, do you see a crossover? I mean, we've talked a lot about the the crossover of of stuff like the UFO phenomena and and the ghost phenomena and. You know, I've remarked that, 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 you know, never the two shall meet. You know, it seems to be kind of like the the rallying cry between the paranormal fields is we don't talk to each other, which I think is complete bullshit. But it's the truth. I mean, they don't. And um, that's one of the things we tried to do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was just, I kind of, we were discussing, as you know, David and I just started a podcast called like you said everyone's got a podcast. We just started a podcast called The Devil's Advocate and that's why we were pitching you for time on your show. Uh but we were kind of tossing show ideas around and I said you know what'd be interesting is to um is to discuss this uh you know paranormal experiencer slash alien abductee contactee connection just this and and I'm I'm not I'm not making um Uh, a general statement to say that this is inclusive of all experiencers, contactees, or folks who believe they've, you know, glimpsed the ineffable. But this is to say that just in broad terms so that we can have a discussion, there is this element of self-aggrandizement and egoism um, that is central to most of the experiences in both camps. Um, If you consider, um, look at someone like, um, do you know who, let's say someone like, Mark Macy or Chris Moon is, you know, these folks. Um,
2: cricket, cricket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, not, not on our well, radar. I'm, Sorry about that.
1: Well, as I see, they didn't generate a lot of excitement. The, the EVP ITC community would know who they are. Um, but there are, so I, I only bring those names up because we kind of have the Billy Myers of our own field. You oh,
2: know. Okay.
1: And um, the point is that there's this central. A human self-aggrandizement that places people at the center of, you know, not just a universe, but a multiverse. And there's these imaginary places called Time Stream. There's this whole narrative where the people on TimeStream are technicians who uh, give builders on this side uh, intuitive clues. It's just this, it, you would not believe the narrative that is woven from the insanity that is the underbelly of this field. But there is this typical um instrumental trans communication account has a self aggrandizing theme like they communicated with me through the radio and they have a message for me mm. now take the word radio" out and it sounds really familiar guys
2: right yeah, absolutely yeah, absolutely. let me
0: ask you like maybe that's a good um good place to go into the spirit com stuff, but um Before we segue there, here's a sort of a question out of left field. We get a lot of, um, well, I shouldn't say a lot. We have a few (laughs) people who ask us, you know, why don't you deal with the occult and magic and things like that on the show? And I just, I have an aversion to it. Um, But have you ever done an experiment where you go to a place that has no signs of being haunted or EVP or anything like that and had someone who claims to be a magician work their magic and conjure up a high strangeness? (laughs)
1: Mm. talk to David Uh, Yeah, I don't really do any of the infield stuff so that would be David
0: I'm not going to go into this
1: in great detail
3: but uh, in my uh, past life I actually was a practicing shaman um, and I practiced what was called wolf medicine Um, and and before that it was coyote medicine but uh, it's a Native American type of uh, religion and and it has religious overtones in it, but it also deals with metaphysical. Um, and I'm sure everyone's familiar with the term shaman. But um, in the 1980s, I was still doing scientific research as well as involved in the metaphysical aspects of the paranormal um, for various different reasons. And a lot of people would come to me for help with issues that they had of a quasi-spiritual nature. Um, And in doing that, I actually met someone whose first words out of his mouth when he met me, and the woman who asked us for help was living on this guy's property in one of the houses on his property. He walks up to me and he says, can you conjure demons? I can. (laughs) (laughs) And he was dead serious. Mm. And I'll go a step further. When I went into his home, because he was giving me a tour of his house and pointing out all the... uh, Uh, activity in his house, and there was quite a bit, his den was nothing but bookshelves on all four walls. On those bookshelves were leather-bound volumes, scrolls, some clay tablets. Uh, The the leather books that I actually picked off and looked through were worth hundreds of thousands of dollars as collector's items because they were grimoires from the Dark Ages, and they were handwritten in Latin. Um, with diagrams and all sorts of stuff. So this man, and he was a redneck, I mean, typical need of the ladder to get into his pickup truck, but his grandfather had been one of the founding people of Levy County in uh, Florida. And Mm -hmm. he's not mentioned in the history books. And the reason is, is because he was involved in the dark arts and they wrote him out of the history. But needless to say, I encountered something that, um, for lack of a better term, I'll call it extreme negativity. Hmm. Um, well, is this I something avoid... that you could
0: reproduce in, you know, in a lab setting or, or something along those, those lines? No.
3: No. <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to begin. I mean, there, were, there, were, there was phenomena involved, including levitation of an individual, uh, possession, where literally the body contorted in such a way as that I don't believe it's physically impossible what they did. Uh, I watched a jealousy window open with the crank not turning. And when it was over, I reached and grabbed the crank and turned it, and it was connected and actually closed the window back. I mean, these are things that defied the laws of physics.
0: You saw the levitation?
3: Saw the levitation.
0: Hmm. And how far off the ground? Calm. I mean, are, are you, like, it wasn't, it couldn't have been a David Blaine street magic trick or something? No, was
3: was in this guy's house, and it was his girlfriend. She became possessed, and she literally lifted a foot off the ground. And, I mean, <laughs> no wires, no nothing. I mean, we were all right there and within an arm's reach of it. And it was, it's, I'll tell you what it does. It disorients you when you witness something like that. Yeah. And uh, the to make a long story short, we ended up dealing with this, and it took about three months with a lot of people working together to get rid of the stuff that was there. And from that day forward, I never got involved with the metaphysical aspect of it again.
0: Now, did that guy ask you to help him? I don't, When he was no, no, like, no. I can do oh, magic, and then, oh, no, help.
3: He, he, he did not want us there. Huh. He, see, he was renting a house to this woman who had a two-year-old child who was in the attic talking to BezaBub, is what he was calling it. <laughs> yeah, you know, so Jeez. we walked into this, and, and I was remaining, trying to remain completely objective, but it broke down.
2: And, well, yeah, when somebody floats around off the floor in front of you, that tends to do that. You know?
3: and, and this story can be verified by my partner at the time who was working with me on this, Robert Lunt, who currently lives near Virginia City, Nevada, and we are entertaining writing a book about the whole story. Um, but it's a very difficult book to write because I have literally blocked out huge segments of my life during that time period and it's only it only comes back when he and I talk about it on the telephone, bits and pieces of it start to come back to me. So I was profoundly affected by what we went through. And he was the observer. I mean, through the whole thing, I think he was meant to be the person to record it. He was the person who was meant to remember it, who was meant to, to be the observer, to put it all into perspective. And he still remembers every detail of it. And him and I are going to have to work together to try to put it down on paper. But even if you don't believe it and you think it's all BS, it's going to be a very entertaining story. Uh-huh. Um, so, but but to answer your question in, in 45 words or less, um, yes.
0: she's <laughs> uh, well, you know, now I can't let this go. When you say meant to, what do you mean by that?
3: I think he was preordained to be the person who would recall it all. Because Why? the rest of us, well, the rest of us were... Even further involved, he was on a learning experience at the time. He was actually learning to be a shaman, and and he was all eyes and ears. He was experiencing it everything fully, whereas the rest of the people involved were more focused on individual tasks and dealing with things. He was the person who, like, we were given a crystal, for example, to use as a weapon against this thing by a, a very famous psychic who didn't even know why we were there, but gave us all kinds of information that turned out to be very helpful. And and he went and cleansed it in the middle of a spring and a river, dove down with snorkels to the mouth of the spring, which was twenty feet underwater, to cleanse this crystal. I mean he did he was the mechanic. He was doing all the support work around it. And he remembered and saw and witnessed almost as being, you know, completely detracted away from him. I mean, he wasn't connected, and yet he was. So he remembers everything, but he's the only person of everyone involved that remembers everything about what happened. And I find that kind of fascinating from a, a, a psychological point of view.
0: Thanks for giving us nightmares. Uh, let's move yeah, on. To the spirit I, I, actually, I
2: have a question before you move on, uh, uh, David. When you were embroiled in this thing, I, I take it you you certainly weren't living in this location, correct? I mean, you weren't no. living at the house. No. Okay, no. so it stands the reason that while this is going on, and while you're investigating this, and you're seeing and experiencing a lot of weird stuff, that would tend to occupy your every thought, would it not?
3: It was, um, I'll tell you, it was a weird time for me for a lot of reasons. Um, My father had just died Mm -hmm. prior to it in Virginia, out out of the blue. Um, So in the middle of all this, I had to go and deal with that funeral. Uh And so the whole time frame was a really messed up time frame for me, to the point where I could not grieve for my father because of the preoccupation I had with what was going on with this. And it wasn't until almost a year later that I actually grieved for my father's loss. Wow. So, yeah, I, I, it, it was – well, and I can sympathize with people who claim to have demonic experiences because what I witnessed I could easily classify as a demonic situation.
2: Well, well and that's, that's the question for you is while you were investigating this, Everybody always has the same question, at least for me, when I talk about going to Gettysburg or, or uh, visiting a haunted location or what have you, is, am I going to bring anything home with me? Uh, and that's the question I have for you in that is when you were investigating this, and obviously it was occupying a lot of your, your thoughts, a lot of your intentions, a lot of your focus. Did you have manifestations happen to you apart from the scene? uh... that were happening maybe in your own home or to you alone every
3: member of the group had experiences that went home with them
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. and there it is every
3: member of the group In fact, uh... robbie and i had a reoccurring hellhound situation where we actually had a black dog with red eyes that manifested itself with both of us and he lived on one side of town i lived on the other and we would compare experiences on a day-to-day basis when we weren't working together. And uh, we were both working together actually at the time doing um, uh, performing arts. We were, doing, we were techies. We were doing lighting and sound work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were working together a lot and got to talk together, you know, every day pretty much during this time period. And then when we weren't working, we were working on this case. So uh, we were all having, and then talking with other members of the group that assembled, we were all having personal experiences away from the scene that were uh, very threatening
2: well well see I, I, the reason I asked that is I had a uh, a case i mean it 's probably been eighteen years ago or so where uh, a man and his girlfriend were were walking in a decidedly new age type retreat and um, I mean, the way it was put to me was that the place that they were is known for fairies. People have seen fairy phenomena, if you believe in that sort of thing, uh, in that location. And they came upon what he described to me were what he thought they were these little people. Uh, and he said, you know, we began to walk ever towards that direction. They were working on something and they were standing in a circle. And he says, as we got closer, we started to get a really bad feeling and we realized that they are around a disc, uh, just a a silver nondescript disc on the ground. And they all turned around and looked at us. And when they looked at us, we backed away and we left. And that culminated in them talking about it, focusing on it, it, it obviously occupying their every waking moment of thought. And therefore, neither one of them could sleep neither one of them could i mean they the way it was put to me was we couldn't escape it because then it started happening at home things that were completely undeniable that were not a joke were not oh i think i saw that it was very obvious it was very in your face That's and the only right. way that they well the only way they, they could escape it was they got in their car and drove to new york city yeah to be around here's, people
3: <laughs> right? yeah, here's the thing. I mean, you have to look at it objectively, and looking back at it, I can look at it now objectively, I couldn't then, but there's a tremendous psychological impact with these experiences, so we don't know how much of it is real and how much of it is influential. We don't, right. and for me to say anything differently would be a conjecture oh, yeah. so i i can't I can't go into that aspect of it. But what I will say is this, and this is from my own knowledge based on recent research, if paranormal phenomena, including cryptozoology, UFOs, what have you, if it is related to interdimensional or transuniversal conduits, then there's nothing to regulate what can come in. We don't know what potential life form is capable of making that journey. We don't even know if it's not even possible that we may be able to make that journey going back. Um, uh, the thing that I think is occurring here is, is that we're experiencing an, a one-way portal that allows something to come in, and a different portal has to open for it to leave again. And that, that's consistent with theories of, of quantum mechanics, that, that a wormhole is basically a one-way conduit. Um, I have recently refined my hypothesis to suggest that, in, particularly in haunting phenomena, the wormhole that actually opens is shaped much like a double helix with two tubes and two throats. One throat allows the phenomena to enter, the other throat is the exit path. So the actual dual throat area is vortexing, actually spinning, and it's creating an area that defies certain laws of physics in a very localized area where these spinning throats are occurring. And we are witnessing something exit from one throat, hang around a bit, and then re-enter to, to, uh, to go back. And in that small localized area is your paranormal event horizon. That's where the stuff is going on. And, uh, of course, this is very premature. Uh, I've had only three experiments now to date, so it's far from conclusive. But the data is very promising, and it looks very much like that there's some type of, of opening that pops open that allows the stuff to just materialize out of nowhere. Hmm. And, and what, what kind of put it together for me is uh, many years ago I studied near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. <clears throat> and the common theme is, is when they leave their body, they travel down this dark tunnel to a light at the other end. And that's hmm. the perfect definition of a wormhole. Mm. so if we die and and of course according to Maxwell's uh, laws of energy conservation, our energy that's in us, the the impulses in our nerve endings, the the brain waves that are electrically produced that energy isn't created and and it isn't destroyed, it continues on forever, so do we become beings of pure energy and if so we become a ball of electromagnetic fields that can essentially radiate out and and transverse these, these wormholes as pure energy. So it's not a far leap. And, and much like Stephen was talking about earlier, this is based on sound theories and quantum mechanics. And the thing that's so huge about our research in the paranormal field is is we may very well make a huge discovery in the field of quantum mechanics by discovering macro manifestations of QM that formally have been theorized as being only experienced at a micro level. And if we can prove, for example, the existence of a wormhole, that will be huge for the scientific community.
1: And in that aspect, I believe we will get scientific support in our research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that, that may be an issue of scalability, but there's also <laughs> there's also the issue of um, uh, bringing the notion of quantum consciousness into this. Exactly. You know, exactly. the idea that... Uh, This may complement, you know, the the wormhole hypothesis very well because under quantum consciousness, the mind itself exists in a holographic universe and is akin to like a neural network. And therefore, then, the thinking would be that the mind in a quantum universe could conceivably exist in multiple universes, Mm -hmm. meaning in one universe, you know, you could be um, dead, another would be alive or in some sense your your dead loved ones in another universe are still alive. Um, this further compounding notion that um, um, in the quantum, there's one interpretation where all things aren't only possible, but have occurred. Um, so there's all this uh, really coming into the debate. And I think the thing that we need to address first is what is thought? I mean, if this is really what we're talking about in quantum consciousness. So the question is really, is thought a stable structure? And, um, the God helmet and plenty of experiments have, have brought this thought along. But, you know, even if you determine that thought is a stable structure, now you, now you have to say, well, is it a stable structure that exists in a higher dimensional space time fabric? So there's, there's all these questions, um, that I think is really important because um, an interesting aspect of, of higher dimensional reality could be that a being residing in it would be able to predict events and then have an influence upon our four dimensional world. Um, you know, three of time, one of uh, three of space, one of time, because they would, so to speak, have a better view.
0: Well, I, I, there was something I wanted to ask uh, Mark Nesbitt when we had him on the other week that I just neglected, and, and I think it fits in here, which um, is have either of you run across a case uh, where people start – well, say you've got a ghost of some sort that claims to be a little boy or a little girl or something, and, and if you don't play along with the character of that's a little boy a little girl – can that thing get explosively angry? Are you, Could you blow its cover, so to speak, by taunting it in some way um, that it becomes this horrific other event?
3: Well, um, I don't taunt, first of all, because I, I'm not willing to say it's a ghost in the first place. I have absolutely no empirical data to prove that.
0: Well, I think this would get uh-huh. to whether or not, you know, whatever is coming through a wormhole right. or or it's, speaking to us... Right is Can authentically you it? itself, you know?
3: Right. Can you influence it? Yes. Um, and perhaps by taunting running a 600,000-volt Tesla coil, um, I don't know if I'm angrifying it or feeding it, but in, the intensity definitely picks up. And I don't know if it's because I'm punching the hole through or uh, propagating it so that it conducts better or how it's working at this point. All I know is is that if we go into a place that's reportedly active and we have nothing going on, I was in a theater, for example, and nothing was going on, I roll out the Tesla coil, put it on a table on on the stage, step back about 70 feet or so back into the crowd, and I fire that sucker up, and it starts lightning on the stage, and then things start happening. Now, uh, is that taunting it? I don't know, but it's certainly stimulating it. Um, I think that there is an interaction factor. I think the observer effect is definitely in play. Uh, In fact, when we do an investigation, we actually have a camera. When we're running different uh, data sets and different uh, apparatuses, the operator is being videotaped as well as the environment, Mm -hmm. um, because we believe that the operator is just as much a vital element of the environment as the actual manifestation is absolutely because we want to make sure that the operator is not the cause creation feeding or facilitator of what we are actually measuring and that's a big huge leap to infinity there but that's what led us into the whole experiments that we're doing now with the mediums studying mediums and how they work is that they are observers who are interacting (laughs) with this phenomenon And uh, to me, that's a very fascinating thing, because that also proves a very important aspect within quantum mechanics, uh, dealing with the wave-particle duality aspect, whereas it's not a wave or a particle until you actually observe it. Mm -hmm. And I believe there's a certain amount of truth to that, that everything remains as probabilities until it's actually pinpointed.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and under that model, by the way, under that model of the collapsing of the wave function brings about the observable event, you know, Michio Kaku himself might toy with the idea of um, there being some, if not a thought form, some alternative place where uh, Elvis is still alive or fairy folk still exist, since all possibilities exist simultaneously, and it's only the collapsing of the wave function which brings them into view.
3: Think, think of it like this, gentlemen. Think of an old-fashioned clothesline where you've got, like, six clotheslines running parallel with each other, and you've got your laundry out there. You've got a bunch of bed sheets hanging on this clothesline, and they're all on different lines, and they're all next to each other, and they're hanging there. And under normal conditions, they all hang there perfectly straight, and they never interact with each other. But if a, if a breeze blows through, suddenly they flap a bit here and there, and they touch each other in different places. And where they touch, the length from one sheet will go to the other and vice versa. And there's a matter transference. And this is exactly the layers of the universe that we're dealing with. There are multiple universes all next to each other. And in fact, some of them could even occupy the exact same space, but just have a resonance of a different frequency than our own. And there could be people walking around us all the time. And we would never perceive them because we are vibrating at a much different rate than they are, much like... Uh, Many waveforms can travel on uh, a radio frequency carrier and never interfere with each other and never even know they're there. Uh, Stereo FM transmission, for example. So the the concept is fundamentally sound, that these things can all inhabit the same spatial realm without interfering with each other until certain conditions, special conditions occur that create that
2: interference. Well, well, David, when, when those conditions occur... And you get, let's just talk about EVP alone, uh, or, or let's roll ITC into it as well. I mean, when you're talking about these events happening, what do you what do you think we're hearing? Because I've heard EVP, if they're to be believed, I've heard EVP that say, you know, somebody says, are you here? And they hear nothing, and yet when they play it back, they say, you know, you hear somebody say, well, of course I'm here. Where are you? Uh, to to garbled messages, to babbling, which right. we've actually gotten on this show before. I uh, guess, I mean, right? <laughs> what, what, what is, uh, uh, is there any kind of consistency as to, are we talking to somebody or are we just listening well, or
3: both? <laughs> first of all, when I go into a situation, I don't interact with the environment. I record it. Um, there are people who interact, um, mm-hmm. uh, There are different kinds of EVP, just like there are different kinds of any phenomena. There is reactive EVP, which is actually responding and interactive uh, with the actual observer. Um, There is what we call residual EVP, which is actually, it's like you've stepped into a moment in time where you're not fully immersed in 1864, but suddenly you're hearing the sound of the battle, or you may see some soldiers run by going to that battle, you're not there, but you are glimpsing into that time period right. because time is a landscape. It's not really something that flows. It's, it's a landscape. It's a dimension. So how you move in time is by changing your location on that, that landscape. So in a paranormal event, when that wormhole opens, if you are at the throat of that wormhole, you are catching a glimpse of a past time, or a conceivable future time, depending on the nature of the wormhole. So EVPs can be residual, where it's you're hearing a moment in history, or you're hearing a special event, or it could be something that's interactive, which means that something is actually close enough to attempt communication. And, you know, that could be anything. We, we, we can't say it's, you know, dead Uncle Harry, Right, it could be it could be an all-knowing interdimensional being that knows your thought patterns and knows exactly what you're thinking and knows how to respond to you in a manner that you'll respond. So,
2: well, 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 David, in, in that in that case, when you've got some something that is communicating with you directly like that, has anyone ever said, "What are you? Where are you? What is this all about?" I mean, like the bigger questions. Has anyone ever, in that rare instance, ever said that? And what kind of answers would you get?
3: Well, we, we, we have gotten uh, things that were anecdotal. Like we have gotten, uh, when I was in Williamsburg uh, doing the uh, uh, experiment in which we were doing the, the uh, whole wormhole, to try to detect the wormhole thing, uh, we actually had a, an EVP that came through that was a conversation uh, between a man and a woman. And, and based on the history of the house, we believe it was the husband and wife that lived there in the late 1600s. And the man's name was William. We had a salt shaker move across the table. And right after that, we caught an EVP that said, we are out of salt, William, from the woman. (laughs) Okay, that's very anecdotal, but that's a very reactive kind of situation. Now, they weren't reacting to us, but then later in the second visit, we got a what are they doing here when we were – you know, sitting with our equipment and and trying to determine where in the room this EVP was coming from, we got this, what are they doing, kind of thing. Like, what were we doing there in their domain? You know what I'm saying? So yeah. in that aspect, do you get reactive stuff? What do you think it is? I don't know. I have theories about what it may be, but is it reactive? Certainly. And Well, well no I mean, it of- Yes,
2: it can be yeah I mean in that case when you when you 've gotten a reaction out of it like that, I mean, I asked Mark the same thing last week, you know when we talk about the the issue of a, a, a time dilation or something like that that you 're observing something out of time, there have been i 'm sure many stories of whatever you 're looking into is also recognizing you i mean we yeah, had exactly. uh, We had someone on that 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 talked about uh, uh, two men walking across a frozen lake, and one said, I'm on a frozen lake, and the other one said, we're in a field, and it's July. Uh, right. And so there was a decidedly communication that was going on, and in the end, the one that we would have perceived as a ghost, or would have labeled it as such, uh, became freaked out and ran away, uh, because he couldn't handle this man telling him this weird stuff, and, and dressed in very strange clothes. Shouldn't we have, like, a history that is fraught with stories of weird stuff uh, from otherwise normal people seeing, I don't know, things from the alleged future? I mean, I could make the analogy that the whole UFO thing is a mirage from the future, but um, – I think
3: we do. I, I think we do have that. I think we are seeing it come out more and more. I, I can tell you that uh, psychiatrists are certainly dealing with more and more of it. Psychologists are dealing with more and more of it. mm mm-hmm. Therapists are dealing with more and more of it. So I think we are seeing it. I think in the past, society wasn't conducive to revealing this type of experience.
2: Well, that's true. Yeah. Burned at the stake and all that. that,
3: With the advent of the TV shows and everything else, it's become more of a kitchen uh, conversation than it has been in our history. Mm. And uh, because of that, Possibly one exception would be uh, during the, the age of spiritualism in Victorian times. Um, it's a household conversation now. So people are more open about discussing their experiences. I mean, I meet people that I would never believe would have any kind of experience every day, and they, when they find out what I do, they've got a story for me. I mean, huh. almost everyone I meet, it, if it didn't happen to them personally, it happened to a family member. Right. So I think it is A lot of it out there. I just think it has never been tabulated. It has never been, uh, you know, point A was never connected to point B, and so we just weren't aware of it. And Mm. and I think in this day and time, with the information exchange that we have with the Internet and everything else, it's becoming more and more evident that uh, it's probably been with us for a very long time.
2: Do you see an increase in the uh, paranormal activity? Over the course of just the time that you've been involved in it, have you seen an ebb and flow pattern to it? Is it getting more prevalent than it used to be, or not?
3: No, I, I think it, it it has high points and low points. It, mm. it has frequency. It it gets intense and then it backs away. And it and it's uh, I haven't been able to establish any kind of predictable pattern with it, but there's definitely periods in my involvement where it has been more intense than others. Good. So yeah, I mean I. I think. I think again. This is conditionally based on something we don't understand yet, and I think it has to do with possibly. It may not make sense to us because of our concept of time, but who knows what their concept of time is? It may be a regular routine on their side, whereas on our side, you know, years could pass. Where to them, it's only a few minutes. So it's 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 all relative to the perception of time from their perspective and our perspective. And I use the word "there" very loosely. Uh, yeah. Because we don't know what we're dealing with. Uh, and, and to pretend that it's something else is really not the right way to go. But uh, for lack of better terminology, you know, there's some kind of obviously there's anecdotal evidence that points to the involvement of other entities involved in this.
0: This is Mark Nesbitt. I wrote The Ghosts of Gettysburg. You are listening to
3: Paratopia with Jeff and Jeremy. Paratopia. If you record audio for any purpose, chances are you want it to be heard. You want to attract the largest audience possible who can hear your message. That's where we come in. We're CyberEars.com, a revolutionary Internet service that will host your audio files and help you promote and track its popularity. Considering hosting a podcast to the world, we have all the automated tools to make the process as simple and easy as it can be. No technical mumbo jumbo to work out. CyberEars.com does all the work for you. You record it, we take care of the rest. So don't delay. Go to CyberEars.com today and register for a free trial account. Upload your audio files and get heard. With CyberEars.com, it's your audio
2: on your terms.
0: Steven still has to talk about ITC. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's get mean, into we want that. I mean, about Spiritcom and, and all that fun. So, which would you like to tackle first, ITC or or is that the same? Is it does it you, you know, it's you know, it, it's kind
1: of one way? and the same because the uh, the birth of ITC um really the anchor point for uh, a discussion of Spiritcom and, and really modern day techno mediumship. Things like this Frank's box and all of this business. Mm -hmm. So I think it's quite important to to anchor it in a discussion of the historic, which um, I would dare say, I know this from the multiple emails I get uh, from people, you know, just attacking and all of this, that um, folks don't really understand the history of EVP and what it's truly anchored in and the misperceptions that have kind of fed on themselves and the degree to which all of this, you know, plays. So I think a a good sound discussion of Spiricom is probably uh, not just a cautionary tale, not just a warning against what could become a modern er Victorian era of uh, paranormal popularity without it being undergirded by any newer approaches so rather rather than make the same mistakes if we can look at something like where this all began and a case in point like SpiraCom I think we can learn from that. So I'll start by saying from the mid 1960s to the early 1980s research on the development of a technological means of communication with the dead was conducted by Metascience Foundation Incorporated. George W Meek was the president of uh, MetaScience Foundation and William J. O'Neill, a self-described psychic electronics engineer, um, supposedly developed a device that facilitated two-way conversation with the dead. They called it Spiricom for spirit communication. Um, The Spiricom project was uh, officially defined as, and I quote, An electromagnetic etheric systems approach to communications with other levels of human consciousness is actually the subtitle on the SpearCom user manual. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the research of Meek and O'Neill, you know, while pursued under the assumption that um, such an endeavor was not only possible but inevitable, was predicated upon the electronic voice phenomenon of perceived voices of unknown origin recorded on audio media. And um, electronic voice phenomenon collectively describes anomalously recorded sounds slash, now we know, EMF, um, approximating vocal utterances as perceived by the listener. So, in 1980... William O'Neill, again this self-described psychic electronics engineer, um, first made contact with a supposedly discarnate being, a deceased NASA scientist named George J. Mueller, and it was done using what O'Neill called the Mark IV Spiritcom. Um, obviously, there being a Mark One through Three before this, and you know other Mark versions to come after. So the Mark IV uh, IV Spearcom device essentially consisted of, um, we'll keep it basic, 13 audio oscillators, each tuned to an audio frequency um, that was presumed to approximate the tone range for an adult male voice should a, um, you know, discarnate being require a voice box there was a radio transmitter tuned to 29.57 uh, megahertz and a radio receiver tuned to the same. And um, there's a variety of, of other equipment that um, may have been a part of the Spiricom apparatus, um, such as what we've come to learn was an artificial larynx device. Um, so while providing detail. Of the Spearcom components, at some level, O'Neill really didn't provide the guts of it. As like the the plans um, were really just block diagrams, okay, and actual schematics were were never. If they were made, they were certainly never made available. So you really have this ill-defined apparatus. Um, this character O'Neill claimed he was able to hold two-way conversations with spirits of the dead, um, some of which he recorded and made available to George Meek, who was O'Neill's benefactor. So the results of O'Neill's experiments in ITC, um, in this instrumental transcommunication, a type of, you know, techno mediumship, these experiments, the results I should say, were announced at a Washington, DC press conference on April 6, 1982, by George Meek, with, um, with a panel of science affiliates. Um, at the time, they were all kind of, you know, uh, if not big names, at least, you know, minor players that folks following the New Age movement and all that would have known. Um, so Meek um, both published and announced that the Spiracom recordings and materials were being provided um, to the public, and so they were. So these created uh, quite a firestorm, really, Um, although looking back without, you know, the benefit of, quote unquote, being there, um, it doesn't look like the firestorm of a, you know, a a popular fad like we might take it today, you know, in, in a YouTube world where something catches on and gets a million hits. This this wasn't. It wasn't that quite that um, dynamic at play. But to be clear, there were hundreds of uh, press clippings in the MetaScience Foundation's uh, archives um, that I've had unfettered access to. And so this is clear that this wasn't just a, um, a big deal in the U.S. among paranormal enthusiasts, but also it was an international, internationally recognized uh, event.
0: Well, I don't understand how that works. If if all you've really got is his word that he didn't do anything screwy, how does that become news? I mean, how yes. did that catch on? Because, you, like you said, he didn't have a device that actually worked, and you just had to believe that the voice, he didn't make it up.
3: Well, I'll tell you what, sir. Why don't I shut the
1: system down, switch over to this other RF generator, i see if it's stable now, sir. Mm. Boy.
2: Mm. Boy. Mm. Boy.
1: Right. Well, um, you're, you're right. There's a, definitely an undiscerning mind would kind of uh, come to this this evidence set and and make a conclusion that O'Neill was talking to dead people. Um, I concede that point, but this was not the initial. Um, take on the evidence. It was really either outright debunked by many, and probably quite rightly so, but it was accepted by those who were kind of looking for belief system confirming evidence anyway. And this really speaks to the problem of the birth of ITC. Modern day techno mediums who use different devices resort to referring to this Scientific American article with uh, Edison's attempt to communicate with the dead. Now interestingly George Meek refers to the Scientific American article in just about everything the guy ever wrote. Um, there's a mythology really surrounding Edison's attempt to communicate with the dead. A, a, a mythology um, surrounding this that's really this article it's often referred to but rarely reproduced and read by anyone. Uh, because a careful read of the actual 1926 Scientific American of the interview with Edison shows that Edison really made no such claims. In fact, the actual title is not Edison's attempt to communicate with the dead, period. The actual title is Edison's attempt to communicate with the dead? Question mark. And um, in this article, Edison is, is... Merely responding in, in hypothetical terms, like like we've been doing tonight with so much, just kind of you know thought experiment stuff. You know, no one should uh, should take something David has said tonight, for example, and uh, and then sit in on his dissertation and say, aha, you see, Roundtree believes that there are elves. You know, uh, who, <laughs> who hammer out silver discs. I mean, that'd be preposterous, right? It's a discussion. Now Edison right. did the same thing and said, well responding in, in hypothetical terms to the reporter's line of inquiry, there was really no indication or reason to conclude that Edison was personally engaged in building a device to communicate with the dead. But the title alone and the fact that almost no one has read it uh, has, has got the likes of, uh, you know, Chris Moon claiming that he's, he's in communication with Edison, who, you know, told him, he's one of the 30 something people who knows how to use the device and so you know come to him or um or there are others but but the point is a careful read shows that it's all mythology. Edison's comments were actually rather derogatory to spiritualists and those involved in psychic uh spiritism. Um his comments however do support the notion that and I quote here's here's an actual quote from the 1926 article. Quote, if we are to make any real progress in psychic investigation, we must do it with scientific apparatus and in a scientific manner. Well, that much I think everyone can agree with. That's what Edison said. Uh, Edison also does state, in fairness to the folks who have misinterpreted it, Edison does state, quote, I've been thinking for some time of a machine or apparatus which could be operated by personalities which have passed on to another existence or sphere. However, he immediately tempered his speculation with the warning, quote, now follow me carefully. I don't claim that our personalities pass on to another existence or sphere. I don't claim anything because I don't know anything about the subject. Um, so what he was doing was clearly responding to a reporter who essentially like accosted him on the street right around Halloween looking for a story. And uh, Edison, speaking in hypothetical terms, cautions him that we need to do all this in a scientific manner with scientific apparatus. And he does say, well, I've been thinking some time of a machine which might do this, because Edison lived in the times when this type of phenomenon was on every street corner, was all the rage, and things like wrappings were taken as serious communication from the dead. So context is everything. Um, and I, uh, I would then put forward why the reason why this is so often misinterpreted is because I think it's a willing misinterpretation of the article um, to kind of bolster the, the cult of, of technomediaship. That's my, that's my take on it. I think that's what George Meek was doing. That's what I think the modern-day folks with the Franks boxes and the, and the Chris Moons, and I think this is what they're doing by intentionally misinterpreting that article.
0: Did they make a lot of money off of SpiritCom, or what, what do you think it was about for them personally?
1: Well, no, that's pretty well. See, that's two separate things. Uh, what it was about personally, and did they make money, two separate questions uh, tied at some level, tied at the nexus of one man, William O'Neill, let's say. William O'Neill, again, is the operator. Um, and yes, there was a financial motivation for O'Neill. It is undeniable from the open Spearcom literature written by, you know, Meek himself, written by John Fuller. Uh, yes, that's the same John Fuller, by the way, who documented the Betty and Barney Hill story for those looking for yet another UFO overlap. When John Fuller recounted the entire story, he also was real clear about this, that while not a quid pro quo, there was a direct relationship between the amount and quality of evidence that O'Neill would produce and how frequently Meek would um, fund his operations. And, um, you know, the situation of William O'Neill was really a dire and very sad one. I don't say anything I'm about to say to mock the guy. Um, because he was really kind of a a kind of offbeat and charming character, really, in a lot of ways. I think I would have enjoyed his company and got a real kick out of him. But he did did find his life unwound by um, deep investigation into the paranormal. Um, I don't know if the trickster was opening too many hatches and he was just falling right through, or if he had a type of latent um, schizotypy that might have been awakened or activated by this kind of you know, paramimetic infection, who knows. I don't know, if, in other words, that, to put it in a simple way, I don't know if he was crazy before he came to the field or if the field made him crazy. But all that being said, he lived in this burnt-out husk of a home, which he called a lab. His wife moved out of the house. He's just financially falling apart. And his one source of, uh, of steady income is his benefactor, George Meek. And so you can see, you can see already there's this biased dynamic to the, um, you know, to the evidence collection process and uh, and all that. So, you know, I mean, I don't need to, I, I don't think I need to state the obvious. I don't mean to assassinate the man's character because I think the bulk of what he did was for, to go to the latter point of your question, um, was for this personal reason, which I think is why a lot of folks are in it. I don't think anyone's really getting rich off EVP and ITC. To the contrary, it costs so many so much. But I think what O'Neill got out of it, I think it's what a lot of folks, you know, probably getting out of it. Uh, I've got this this working, I dare to call it a theory of an irrational memetics, you know, the meme, the idea of an infectious idea, bringing into question how much is anomaly and how much is anomalous perception, um, I think O'Neill was taken by the parameme. I think I think O'Neill was um, incapable of many critical faculties that other people have, and so it was this kind of perfect storm of this man who fancied himself a healer and this you know offbeat mystic and techno medium, um, combined with the fact that he might have had some type of schizotypy at the time. So he was adopting all these extra-cognitive conclusions as beliefs, and then the person is motivated, as you've seen from world religions. We don't need to get specific, but you've seen that ideas are spread and reinforced in believers, you know, and the afterlife meme kind of devolved or evolved into this notion of communication with the afterlife, or communication with the dead meme, Um, It's peculiar to EVP and ITC as dogma, really, but it is still just another self-sealing doctrine type like we see in so many belief systems. So, really, what he got out of it was uncritical beliefs became his belief system. And so when those become intractable, evidence in support of your beliefs becomes the very motivation uh, not to mention again that, you know, this was one of his only sources of income.
0: So you know, I
3: I just turned the camera TV camera on, sir. What did you say, William? I said I just turned the TV camera on. All no, very well. You never know,
0: Doctor.
2: Yes, I understand, William. All right now very well. Now let's get on with this. And what I suggest,
1: William, is that we disregard to <coughs> this audio project project. Yes. Your words, and get on with the yeah, oh I see. Yeah I see. How much better the you to you
0: understand it would be.
3: Yeah I understand. Just a minute sir. Just a minute.
0: So going by that then, are, are you saying that when he would sit there and actually create, um, well, these EVP or this SpiritCom uh, chat, uh, that he was not aware that that's what he was doing? Or well,
1: what? I am. to be clear, I am not a psychologist, but what I do know is that William O'Neill um, died in the care of uh, Deary State Mental Hospital in Pennsylvania. And um, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So this tells me that he very well could um, not have been entirely responsible for his, you know, acting out his delusions. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, the reason he was so highly effective at these particular, you know, delusions on tape in the form of, you know, Spiricom, was because he had the skill set of a ventriloquist. And I can prove this as well, because not only did he concede the point that he was a ventriloquist on a child's television show while in Cincinnati in John Fuller's book called The Ghost of 29 Megacycles, he joked frequently with Meek about this ventriloquism and how people would, oh, people will just call it ventriloquism, Um, and then the fact that he was in possession of an electrolarynx, and the Spiricom recordings sound like an electrolarynx, except... To be clear, it sound they sound like an electrolarynx that's kind of misused. You're supposed to, uh, if you have a laryngectomy, you're supposed to have this electrolarynx device up near your throat. But if you simply use your oral cavity cavity for modulation of the uh, electrolarynx sound, um, it's been proven by Dr. David Rivers, a professional speech pathologist, that the Spearcom recordings sound precisely like a misused electro larynx device and the reason that's important is because the videotapes I have of O'Neill operating the device O'Neill is always with his back to the camera O'Neill is always with his hands essentially resting on a countertop or sometimes making hand gestures lending credibility because people are saying well I know it kinda sounds like this device but look he never picks one up um however if If among the rack of devices in front of the guy, he simply had this thing mounted and the oscillating tone were just running constantly, if he just simply put his mouth in approximation of the electrolarynx device, he wouldn't have to say anything. He'd have to move his mouth as if he were using his ventriloquist skill set between his spoken words.
0: And he admitted that he had this uh, device?
1: No, he didn't make it wildly... Uh, admitted. However, I having unfettered access to the the meta-science archives, not only did I find a manifest of the um, O'Neill lab, and I use that term very loosely, a manifest of all the materials that were moved out of O'Neill's lab, uh, the electrolarynx is listed, but um, I found a second-hand electrolarynx um, uh, in the meta science archive vault, so to speak, and um, Meek himself discussed in the—I uh, don't know if this is you know stupidity or daring or something—but Meek himself mentioned in the first edition, the first draft and release to members only um, of the Meta Science Foundation, he spoke about the organization having possession of an electro larynx That was later taken out of editions, you know, probably for obvious reasons. But so you have all of this bearing upon it, and uh, in retrospect it seems silly, but in very contemporary times it was touted as, you know, the holy grail of EVP. This is real-time two-way communication with the dead, and look, you know, the voice from the other side is helping this intuitive uh, with his circuitry and all of this. Um, so I guess at some level, to the um, you know to the mind of someone in, in in 1980s and maybe someone without electronic sophistication, and the fact that O'Neill in their defense was really putting forward a very black box technology, and he him being completely unaware of the you know cognitive nature of his own delusions, well I think is a perfect storm, and it really caught fire. Now. Why do I think this is an important case? Like, why should anyone care or really, you know, give a crap about Spiricom? And it is because of all the cautionary tales. Clearly, you can descend, you know, like Alice down this rabbit hole. Um, You can descend through the looking glass, and things can get really weird. And a guy like O'Neill could not come back from that. And uh, a guy like Meek, George Meek, really a uh, self-made millionaire. He had... um, Uh, lots of patents to his name and some pretty great contracts with, uh, you know, defense department and stuff. Uh
0: Um, You know, he knew that he was, uh, that he was schizophrenic.
1: uh, Yeah. Meek knew, but um, in Meek's, uh, Meek's framework for understanding uh, became a more mystical one as time went on. And so by the time he met O'Neill, the reasoning I'm not saying this is like an actual reason. I'm saying the reasoning for O'Neill being gripped by this problem of schizophrenia was well, clearly it's not schizophrenia. You know, Meek thought, well, he must be, you know, struggling with uh, demons, you know, kind of literally, you see. Mm. And so if he just had been exercised over the uh, telephone, as I have tape recordings of, um, or if he stopped drinking and was exercised via the telephone, you know, a la you know, a la David Jacobs with Woods. <laughs> But Woods. Right. Um, so, you know, it, it, it didn't work. Um, O'Neill obviously ended up in a mental facility and, and died in a kind of palliative care situation. I'm glad
0: the Jacobs thing has gotten to other <laughs> people. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, I don't know
1: how he, by the way, I don't know how he's eluded... Um, well, anyway, that's a whole other yeah, problem. Yeah, well,
0: but... I, I don't know how he's eluded um, u- ufology, but yet here you ghost guys are aware but. Uh, So nobody back then, or or did they, a doctor step forward, a skeptic, and say, hey, this is a larynx device?
1: Yeah, yeah, in fact... um, So
0: what do you think that says about the rest of us, where, you know, you know he's a ventriloquist, you've got the evidence that it's a larynx device, and yet our will to believe that over the evidence?
1: well, Well, it does say a lot, but in fairness to those who were taken in at the time, and I'm really not one to defend such a thing, but in fairness to those... You would need to look at all of the open literature to put together the pieces as convincingly as I've just laid them out. You know, a paragraph here, a page there, the first draft of a manual here, um, the actual on-site investigation and unfettered access to the archives there. So in retrospect, this is a much easier story to explain. Um, But to speak to your larger point, when you've got Fate magazine, not exactly the biggest bunch of skeptics, when you've got Fate Magazine out there hosting articles called Spiracom or Spiracon and uh, that, I, I, I willingly admit that, um, that they came up with it first, though I, I'd come up with it, and then someone said, hey, there was an article called that. But uh, in, in that Fate Magazine article, they mentioned this Dr. David Rivers, who had kind of been asked, to, you know, will you authenticate this stuff? You are a... Um, a speech pathologist, is there anything nuanced about the speech? Is there something we should know um, at a vocal signature level? You know, just kind of asked to look at it. And him being a guy who deals in speech pathology quite broadly, he said, hey, that sounds like an larynx." And let me see if I can make my voice sound like this voice. And he couldn't when he used it properly, but then he could when it was used improperly. So, what does that say about Folks who would read Fate magazine and continue on believing it, I think what it says is that despite the the logical fallacies that abound in the Spearcom story, there is some sort of a uh, there must be a need in people for, if not the creation of a of a paranormal ethos or the adoption of fringe ideas as a belief system, um, there certainly is a method by which those ideas are spread and reinforced in believers. I think that's what it says. Mm -hmm. I think it says people don't bring the entirety of their critical faculties to, you know, stuff before they go believe it. That's why, um, and I don't know if I'm coining this, but I think it describes it perfectly. Um, That's why people go around, you know, adopting extra cognitive conclusions as beliefs. You know, is it reality avoidance? You know, yeah, for some people probably. Does does a does something like the Spearcom story or this um, the meme surrounding EVPITC that you know you're talking to dead people? Does that does that hold some explanatory schema power for people because of their framework of understanding might be kind of a religious or a spiritual one? You know, yeah, probably. Is there a cultish nature to all of this? Like you know, this cult of techno mediumship and this and the psychological dynamic of one-upsmanship, um, it, which is uh, kind of similar to a lot of the abductees I'd mentioned, just to kind of tie it in for the, you know, for the folks who are well read in the UFO stuff. You know, yeah, probably it's a cult of techno mediumship, um, but I think there's something deeper. I think um, I think we need to look at really the, psycholo- the uh, well, what's called the psychobiological explanation for the creation of a paranormal ethos. I think it's important to uh, uh, to not just listen to the audio cassettes of Spiricom and say, you know, hey, cool, um, but to also look at what EVP findings are interpreted as. You know, mm-hmm. David speaks clearly about what they are from a data standpoint, but what are they interpreted as? Mm-hmm. And what does... Um, you know, given the uh, contribution of the Spiricom, quote-unquote, evidence to the already existing EVP-ITC mythology, um, you know, what is the role Spiricom played in the expansion and spread of the mythos at the popular level? And I would say, were there no Spiricom, there would be no Ghost Hunters on sci-fi. And the people who write me, to tie it back in 20 minutes ago now, the people who write me and say... Spearcom's not important. I've never heard of Sperocom. Why are you going to hang the um, the yay or nay on on EVP you know on the Speercom case alone? I have to remind them of two things. Well, one, uh, I say Spearcom case closed, EVP case open that 's the first thing. I uh, do not throw away the uh, EVP baby with the Specom bathwater. Um, hmm. But you do have to look at this supposed what, – what was really touted as the best evidence, you know, this was amazing real-time communication. You have to look at um, why people believed it, how that meme spread, and how to avoid that type of irrational memetics in the future so that the entire field, so far as it is a field, isn't taken in by the next big dumb idea.
0: Well, gentlemen, I think that is a great place to leave it for now. Do you have a, a website that you would like people to go to?
1: spearcomstudy. dot spearcomstudy.com. And David?
3: Uh, mine is
0: uh, org. Thank you both for coming on. This has been. Yes so fascinating that I immediately want to do another episode
2: but, uh, <laughs> yeah, do.
0: are you guys still going to do a, a two hour thing for the next round of Peritopia heck yeah okay excellent excellent very good uh, so look forward to that everybody um, all right well Dr. Stephen Rourke and David Roundtree thank you very much for coming on the show
2: thanks guys thank you
1: thanks for having us guys
2: you've been listening
0: to Peritopia with Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vane, and I could care less. <laughs> well, Jeff Ritzman, that was um, a pretty incredible really good. episode. <laughs> and for you, probably the best you could ask for under the circumstances. Yeah. And let's yeah. talk about what those circumstances are.
2: We don't have to spend a lot of time on this, I guess. I mean, there's just, you know another freaking moron that's, that's come to, uh, that's, come, that's walked along to malign us all. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, and, and it's par for the course. I mean, again, I, I kind of, in our, in our round tree and, and, uh, work interview mentioned the notion of, you know, the, the whole trickster theorem and, and all of that. And they, and they acknowledged that, but I mean, how perfect is it that, You know, in one week's show, we talk about we're not going to discuss or respond to the nonsense and the attacks. That's, we're done with that. And everybody's like, yeah, that's a great idea. And then, like a tidal wave, they come forth (laughs) Uh, worse than normal. Um, I mean, you're always uh, being somewhat public and and having a a public discussion like this. You're bound to attract some of that, but it just came in droves after that. Um, And then not long after that, um, you know, we, we make another statement that essentially we're not going to continue the show on as it has been with the two of us bringing guests on and talking to them about it because we really kind of like said what we needed to say and part of the course it just seems like i don't know i'll say it i think it just feels like the phenomena of reality whatever you want to call it is kind of bending to drag us back into it uh in some kind of way in well in a in a conflict sort of way knowing of course the personality that i have which is you know if you're attacked the answer is to respond to it and to end it and i won't do that i'm just going to let it go because um you know well i'll put it this way whatever what's being said elsewhere is so absolutely retarded it's not even worth answering to well
0: here's the thing just to give people some setup uh yeah there's someone else who you know it, it has made it his life's mission to attack us but he's so fucking inept and everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie uh or just wrong just wrong information that um anyone who listens to him knows that in fact nobody has said to us gee uh, is this any of this true because you're gonna listen and you're like yeah no none of this is true and none of it is true um but uh, of course it's the kind of thing where the the less attention we pay to him uh the more attention he tries to get and so we're not going to say his name on the air here because that would just be too perfect for him um but I will. I do think it's important to bring up because his behavior. I mean, as you know, someone who has been on a radio show or two, um, he comes across as sort of a likable yokel. Like you, you just think, "Oh gosh, golly, that's one one cute, dumb guy." Uh, but what's not cute is that in his zeal to go after us, he. Has uh, gone after our gone after our friends on Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, put slanderous remarks under friends of mine from high schools. You know, children's photographs. Called up my friends uh, and colleagues in this field to try to badmouth me and try to turn my friends against me. I mean, calling people at their home. I mean, so it's this like almost sociopathic or perhaps sociopathic. I don't know. Um, building uh, of of just wow look at me look at me pay attention to me um that doesn't seem to be going in a- away anytime soon now he's sort of dedicated his show to uh to getting us and uh, you know but under the of course ironic moniker or bullshit uh of um you know well th- those guys are egotistical you know the week that we decide to give our show over uh. to the audience is the week that we're called egotistical and arrogant but by, a, yeah. by an egomaniacal sociopath. So, you know, it's not fun, and we're not the only ones. I mean, you know, th- this is the thing that really bothers me. He said on his Facebook page, Biedny, talking about Dave Biedny and talking about the Paracast, um, mm-hmm. says Biedny is a fat, crying baby puking on his mother's milk, whatever that means. Hopefully he stays gone for good. Their style of attacking someone like they have done with Dolan and others is a big turnoff for me. It's why I will never listen to their show. Then he goes on in another post to talk about them, and it says... You know, sounds ego-filled and angry to me, uh, but that seems to be be the way to get popular, isn't it? The Paracast way. Who's supposed to be such legends that everyone tries to imitate and talk about or bitch about. Fuck all that. Never listen to them. And you know what? I never will. Doing my own gig. Paracast influence free. Um, (laughs) So if you've never listened to them, then how do you know anything about them? So that's that's lie number one. But uh, I I just want to say that, you know, We've had our differences with Dave, obviously. Oh, yeah. We've had a very public falling out. We used to be friends. And obviously, you know, I still don't care about the, the current incarnation of the Paracast. But you can't hold their jock.
2: That's that's very true.
0: <laughs> so you don't yeah. know what you're saying, and you're just trying to make a name for yourself by, you know, getting famous off of, of, of other people. And, you know, I, you know, I get it. And that's all well and good. But the sociopathic horseshit has to stop. There's no going on the air and pretending to be this kind, sweet, gosh, golly victim of something, which is also a lie, but then like going, you know, and calling people in their homes and calling women the worst names you can call them, uh, sending uh, homophobic hate mail to uh, a lesbian colleague and and friend of the show simply because (laughs) they're friends of the show. I mean, that's not something you do, dude. So if anyone doesn't know who I'm talking about in ufology and you don't want to support this type of behavior, feel free to send me an email or or give me a ring or whatever, and I'll be glad to tell you exactly who it is so you can stay away from their show. But it's – yeah, you're right. I mean it's this kind of thing that does drive one a little loopy because it is – on the one hand, it's this sociopathic odd response that is personal to – Um, the, the moron trying to make a name for himself and trying to feel like he is someone, um, off the backs of others in a field like this, if that makes any sense. Right. But like you said, there's the other element of this sort of trickstery thing that seems to steer these people our way just when we want to (laughs) call it quits, you know?
2: Right. Right. And what does that
0: say about somebody when you're like, well, we're calling it quits. And then they're like, well, we're going to just keep attacking you. Yeah. Sorry. What? we're not even allowed to leave. Like
2: <laughs> <laughs> They're throwing tomatoes as you leave the building. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, I don't, um, I, I've had like two people write me and say, you do know about this, right? And I'm like, yeah, I don't care. It's irrelevant to me.
0: Yeah. I don't care what he says on the show. I don't care about the lies. and,
2: and What, what I don't like is the, is the, the peripheral stuff, yeah. like calling people on the phone and giving them a bunch of guff and, um, and and the the heinous Facebook stuff that you put under somebody else's child. I mean, really, uh, that's that's ridiculous. And and that just makes you think. And you that- just
0: had a child yourself, right? I mean, we're right. Talking about a new father here too. So that's what yeah.
2: I mean. That's what's even more.
0: You know, it comes on our message board as different people to try to spam our message board, saying, "Listen to this show." You know, are, are we a nail in the coffin of? peritope it's like
2: yeah not no, so much No, you're,
0: you're <laughs> a, more like a, a zit on the ass of ufology is what you are yeah um but you're another reminder of why it's important for us to leave and i'll tell you jeff um yeah we've been discussing this and i think i have one final revelation for ufology before i go uh <laughs> w- which i think you agree with which is that ultimately uh this field of study uh is a mirror and it is reflecting yeah. back at us. The more the give, you more, the more you give, the more you get. <laughs> right. It's reflecting back at us what we are. And so, when you see this hypothetical disclosure scenario, or what if aliens came down? You know, we're seeing it now with Stephen Hawking. You know, was talking about yeah. this type of thing. Well, we don't know what aliens would be like, but we do know what we would be like because we're mm-hmm. seeing it. Because here we have a hypothetical situation. We have experiencers of something, and we have people theorizing about that. So basically, what we've got with this field is humankind going up against, uh, brain-wise, thought-wise, an unknown, a hypothetical unknown. Right. And so just in the hypothetical, not with aliens actually having come here and landed or anything, look what we have done. We have become aggressive, backstabbing, uh, religious- Believers, you know, it reminds me of like, you know, in two thousand one, Space Odyssey, where you know the apes see the obelisk <laughs> and all, and yeah. they touch it. And now all of a sudden, they've learned something, and they they've learned how to use tools.
2: Right.
0: It's like we're touching the obelisk, and we're not learning anything. We're learning, <laughs> we're learning how to eat our own. Like that's what we've learned.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: why don't they land? Because this is why they don't land. And then the other part of that is we're always saying, well, this thing hides in the shadows. It's clandestine, right? It it doesn't want to be known and therefore it must be nefarious. But truth of the matter is um, we're nefarious and any of the good researchers in this field are clandestine. Jacques Vallée has yeah. left the building and yet he's still doing research. NARCAP has, as an organization, never entered the building Changed the term UFO to UAP. Um, right. Phil Imbrogno has left the building but is still researching the paranormal. And so I think you see this exodus from the field of people who get what the field is, even if they don't get what the phenomenon is. And we call those people heroes. But when the phenomenon hides from us, <laughs> we call that evil. I'm just not buying that. I'm All I know is what I can see in the mirror and what I see is not uh, is not pretty and it ain't them, it's me. And I don't want to be me anymore. <laughs> I don't want to be that
2: reflection. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, how many people now have exited because I mean, I mean, well, it all goes back to what I heard McKenna say on a lecture, which was uh, you know, you have this very interesting phenomenon, the UFO thing, and God only knows what that is. Uh, but then you have the bigger problem, which is the UFO community. And then he goes on to describe the UFO community is some of the most half-witted, mush-minded people you'd ever hope to encounter. And and I think he's right. I think he's right. And um and, and I and again, that certainly doesn't bear any witness to our audience, uh, in by and large, or any of our guests or anything like that. I think we've done our best to have people on this show that you know that are not that of, of that ilk. We've done our best to avoid that element at every turn, but unfortunately, uh, I mean, for me, um, this comes down to a log pile. I mean, it's all just, it just piles on, and maybe that's, maybe that's a sociological thing. When you say you're leaving, the pile-ons just start to happen, uh, miniature ones and bigger ones. Uh, Nevertheless, if you think that that doesn't grate on you and make you go, what am I even doing this for? What, why, why would anyone want to be subjected to this? You know, that's, that's at the point where, you know, you're ready to step away. And so that's essentially my thing right now. I mean, what are you going to do? Five more episodes of this?
0: Yeah, I'm going to go to 70. I know. So, you know, the revelation here is that Jeff is going to bail out now and I'm going to, Yeah, I've got a few more that I want to do, but I, I honestly, I think, that this is the perfect episode for you to go on because this is all the shit that you love. And I think, well, it is, I think yeah. you've gotten some new threads to pull on. You know? Well,
2: it is, it is. And, and um, you know, and I'll say this, it's like I've been talking about for a while of, of kind of switching gears and kind of studying the paranormal from a different angle, which would be the ghost thing. Uh, because I am exceedingly intrigued by it. And I feel in many ways that it's a lot more hands-on, uh, than, than most of the, the paranormal endeavors out there. And so that's what I would like to do. I mean, I would really like to talk to David Roundtree some more about his work, what he's found, the devices that he's using, and how he's measuring things. I find that completely enthralling uh, in, in studying this. And uh, But uh, I can tell you that he's got it right, which is don't be a voice, in this don't be a public voice that's where the problem happens uh, and that's certainly where it's happened for me and and uh like like we said before you you think you get into this to do some good and you come at it with the best of intentions but it just it, you know it doesn't want you it doesn't want that uh, and so the best way to to do it is just as so many have done it Phil and Brogno and and Jacques fillet which is to drop away and do it on your own and that's it I mean, and that, so that's essentially what I'm doing. We're still going to continue on with the thing with the user generated content and all of that. Uh, I'll say
0: one thing about that, too, which is yeah. part of me is like, gee, I, I sure hope a whole lot of people don't want to do it and then I can just go away. I, I, I honestly, but I. So I, if it becomes a flood of people who want to do it, there are now, I think, four people, which is like a month's worth, worth of episodes. Yeah. Which is fine, which is a fine start. But. If it doesn't go beyond that and this thing fails, I'm fine with that because I I I think this could be something. And Jeff, you had pointed this out to me, where people say um, that's a great idea, that's really brilliant, and then don't actually want to participate in it. Right? (laughs) They just like it in theory. And if that happens, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with leaving. If it takes off, you know, I guess I'll deal with that too. (laughs) But me right now is just like you know, you just need a vacation or something.
2: Well, I I think that you're probably coming to the same realization that I am, that you're not going to do any good as a public figure. Well, that's that's just it. It's because of
0: what I said. To to me, it's like, that was my big aha moment. Oh, I get it. This whole thing is our response to the unknown. This whole thing. There is no, what would happen if aliens landed? Would would we shake their hands? Would we put guns on them? No, (laughs) this is... The virtual reality model for yeah. contact that we are seeing unfold before our eyes. Absolutely. And that model has shown us go from informed, inquisitive research straight down into egomaniacal war, war, charlatans, religious fanaticism. I just had dinner with um, some ufologists who I like, <laughs> right. who I think are good people. Right. And yet one of them is friends with David Jacobs and one of the others said, you know, I just don't understand this Emma Woods thing. Can you explain it? And I explained it. And the other guy just – you could see him getting hostile and just started <laughs> parroting what Jacobs had said. And I said, well, did you look at any of what Emma Woods put online? Well, no. Well, but she's a she's got a borderline personality disorder. He showed me the definition. This is unbelievable. Think? <laughs> Think, yeah, th- I know this is your friend, but – but think, and then you know, I'm listening to the conversation, and on the one hand, you've got this contact E and his wife who are talking about alien bases and uh, inside of a mountain, and you know, they've got a, a treaty with the government because with with our government, even though it's in <laughs> South America, uh, right? Because you know, we've got weapons and we shot them down during Roswell, and they don't want that to happen again. It's like, and they're like, "Don't you know that?" She's saying this to me. I mean, what do you think? Ros- what do you think happened at Roswell? We shot them down. And I'm like. I think I don't know what happened at Roswell. Any other answer is a lie. (laughs) Yeah. And so that's the one thing. And then you've got the researcher friend, who, again, I like, and so I'm not going to name him um, and embarrass him. But he's rolling his eyes at that nonsense because he thinks his nonsense makes sense, which Mm. is, you know, the stereotypical bud hopkins jacobs scenario of gray aliens creating hybrids taking over blah blah <laughs> right it's like two subsets go. of complete horseshit and you know each one of them thinks they're right and if i were a phenomenon looking at this no i wouldn't reveal myself either i might just sit back and laugh and torture people with tricksterisms
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i pretty much agree with everything you're you're saying i mean it's it's just uh
0: and can I just I, say one thing, to? I'm sorry, Jeff. Yeah. And, and then I will completely shut up. Okay. Um, it just dawned on me just now that this whole thing about Emma Woods having a borderline personality disorder and that she just goes on, you know, her whole life is about taking down Jacobs. That's all she's going to do is go on shows and message boards and blah, blah, blah. Right.
2: Um,
0: I haven't talked to her about this, so I don't know if I should be saying this, but fuck it. It's one of our last shows, right? <laughs>
2: Okay, Pretty. be much, careful.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's nothing horrible. In fact, you know, it's nothing at all, really. I just haven't, like, run it by her. But the day after her episode aired with us, uh-huh. she got offered uh, two shows. One was Wes Owsley's, um The Black Fridays, okay. and the other was Unknown Country with Whitley Streber. They both okay. contacted her and said, will you do my show? And she said no, because she felt like doing uh, the one show, thankfully ours, was enough to sort of get the point across and that anything else would be overkill. Uh, Um, And she may change her mind in the future. Who knows? You know, maybe she'll go on these shows. But the point is, if she were somebody who were a borderline personality disorder, doing everything in her power to destroy him, you know, Streamer's dreamland is probably second to coast to coast in terms of paranormal popularity. Yeah. That would be the way to go. She didn't take it.
2: Right, right, right. So yeah.
0: that's the end. There's your evidence that he's full of shit.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: you know, that's.
2: I think that episode, for me, and that whole story for me, just kind of exemplified what's wrong in this for me, and that, uh, and that it can get a lot more serious than the garden variety wrongdoing in a research. Capacity, you know, Uh, it can get it can get a lot worse than that, and so I think I think that was uh, that was a point where I said, yeah, I I need to kind of come out of my little vacation mode uh, to talk about this because it was something I'd been talking about for a long time. But you know, everybody knows that at this point that when I took my vacation, I was I was on the verge of bailing out of this anyway, and. And I think anybody who's who's followed a, a, any of my stuff for the many years that it's been around on the net knows that I dropped away from this years ago for about three to four years, I think, and that was over not the not even remotely the same issues um, that was over just the the heaping helping of weirdness and the heaping helping of what I would say was. I guess everybody, I mean Jeremy, would you know what I mean when I say uh well thought out paranoia?
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, uh when you've got guys coming to your workplace and saying stop talking about this or that or, or stay away from this case or that case or, you know, bad things can happen and then you have somebody follow you home and so it's like that all became all too real to me. Um and I have to be honest and say that before that all of that happened, I largely considered that to be a fantasy. I thought that was just people being paranoid because the field does and can will make you paranoid. Um. But uh, but you know, I found out all too quickly that uh, weird stuff like that does happen. Whether or not that was really what it was didn't matter either way. I personally believe that it was, and I'll stand by that. But even if it had been some sort of misunderstanding or miscommunication or whatever. It was still equally terrifying uh, to have something like that happen. And so I dropped away because, frankly, I was afraid not all that much about myself, but I was more worried about my family than I was anything else. Uh, And so when it affects to that level, that's at the point where I say I I need to walk away from this. I need to give it up and and not not engage it. And I think for me, and I'm going to be completely upfront with our audience because – you know, why stop being that now is that this show and the aggravation that has ensued from everything from the Emma Woods thing to this current thing to stuff all the way back when we started this show, um, all of that has taken a very large chunk of my time and my focus and my effort, and it's taken a great deal of me away from my family Away from art, away from music, uh, all the things that I really love, and um you know, and it's time to again step back, step out of this in a public way, and start refocusing on doing my own research when it suits my own goddamn schedule <laughs> instead of a weekly thing and It's not that I disliked doing this show, I'm very proud of the show I mean I think every one of you again if we didn't do that before i'll do it again i thank everybody who listened to this every guest that we ever had on um the show i i thank you all a lot uh for your support both monetary and um you know through emails and just words of encouragement in what we did but unfortunately as often happens with this stuff it's just gotten to this critical mass level that is like I don't want to be involved anymore. And so I want to read this because I wrote this today. It's kind of like I didn't want to just exit this show and not say goodbye or thank people that I should have. So anyway, I want to read this. I said, well, we've said that episode 70 is our final episode, but I'm sorry to say I won't be around for that. I have in recent days become so utterly fed up with not only this field, but the morons who inhabit it in conjunction with those of us who are truly seeking answers, which I think is a lot of our audience. I think a lot of our audience uh, falls into an open-minded mindset, but one that is critical and one that is desperate to see this field get transformed in some meaningful way. But unfortunately, all of us in this field have ended up with the dregs of societal failure being involved in causing nothing but discourse in their search for fame. Unfortunately, those of us who have a professional career or notoriety or notoriety outside this UFO subject and aren't looking to be famous, there's no application for involvement in this subject. You can't er- accept or reject anyone uh, for being heard. It's all free reign. Uh, and that, to me, is one of the biggest problems in this field. Uh, so these are my last words to this show, our audience. And uh, I just want to tell you guys, uh, I think you know largely because of what we've said on the show. I think you know what I've come to as far as this subject. Um, but these are kind of side bylines that are a little bit broader in scope and maybe a little bit separate from the phenomena itself. Uh, and so this is what I want to leave you with. This subject, this field, is a completely futile endeavor. And I'm hearing a lot of people gasp at that, especially at me saying that. Um, I said here, it it consumes not only by virtue of the search for the phenomena, but it consumes via those involved who seek confrontation and fame through any means necessary. I think we all know what that's about. We've seen this for years. It's not just this recent stuff, but for years we've seen this kind of behavior in this field. Another item, trust no one. Now it sounds like, you know, the X-Files maybe got one thing right, Uh, but, but maybe it's a bit extreme. I mean, you can find those. In this, who are your kindred spirits and those who are just golden to you? And if you all can band together in some way and shelter each other from vicious attacks and fights that ensue from dispelling nonsense and engaging the real research, then more power to you. I don't know that that's possible because you're dealing with all sorts of different personalities and all sorts of different belief systems and ideologies that don't work together. Um, Ultimately, this field will break you. It's, it's made serious researchers go to ground or become far less public than they used to be. The brilliant mind of Dr. Jacques Vallée being only one of many. Uh, I, of course, believe there is a legitimate phenomenon going on. But I also believe it's a rough-ass teacher with no remorse whatsoever. And since Jeremy and I have said we refuse to acknowledge the garbage, the garbage has come full tilt into our laps. Since telling this field we're leaving... It's multiplied. So I think I said before that it feels like a jilted lover. And I've got here, what I wrote down was, I'm leaving you, meaning us saying that. And the phenomena's response is, the hell you are. You aren't going anywhere. I want to qualify that statement just briefly. Not only are we being publicly maligned, it's not just that. It's that, and, and here's, here's a little a weirdness for you. When we went to record the Mark Nesbitt episode, um, I believe, Jeremy, correct me if I'm wrong, that's when we said we were going to halt things in a normal way for this show. Mm-hmm. During the course of taping that show, everybody knows we caught some sort of sound uh, or breath that is not us. That wasn't all that happened. We also had objects fly off my shelf behind me Where In the room I sit in to do the show, which Jeremy heard, (laughs) Uh, he didn't see because my camera wasn't pulled around far enough. I also had a very weird instance with Jeremy's webcam where one moment he is sitting up uh, reading me an email before we did the show, and his his image um, at times becomes pixelated from the lag on the internet. It's common. You see it all the time. But what's weird is… Only he dissolved away. The room, the whole picture didn't dissolve. Just him. And then he completely disappeared and snapped to a sitting-up position, looking at me through the widest eyes I've ever seen on Jeremy, with his mouth gaped open like he was scared to death. And then an instant later, it snapped back to him reading uh, and, and being in time with his voice. His voice never stopped, but the image changed Instantly and drastically to a position he had not even taken during our entire conversation.
0: And Jeff pretty much jumped across the room at that point. And was yeah, like, I did. And I'm like, what yeah. are you doing, dude?
2: Yeah, I mean, it freaked me out pretty good. And there's been some other things that have happened just around my space that have been what feels like. Come on, you're not going to go anywhere. You know you don't want to leave because now I'm going to show you this. Uh, and so I feel like it's that seduction going on all over again. Because uh, you know, when when you become uh, attuned to this a little bit, a, a little bit more acutely than most, you start to see patterns in it. And I'm definitely seeing similar patterns as to the first time that I walked away from this. Um, so what I wrote here is this phenomenon knows how you work. I am, and here's my admittance to everybody, a control freak by simple example. I fear this phenomena because I fear a loss of control when I encounter it. There's nothing more exemplified in a loss of control than a loss of your own personal image, in other words, an attack by someone else. You feel a deep-seated need to address it, to fight it, to argue it, and to prove it wrong. And there it is again. You're not going anywhere. See? And so therefore... What I'm getting at there is that this thing knows how I react. Whatever this is all about, it knows how I react. And yes, there's a sociological uh, part to this, but I believe there's also something that's deliberate about it in the sense that anybody anybody who listens to this show knows this, is that um, – You know, what did I spend a year and a half up against uh, the Meyer case and, you know, just couldn't let it go, couldn't – you know, no matter how ridiculous it got, every attack that they leveled at me, I responded to, and that's a foolish thing to do. I learned my lesson with that. So I have learned certain things (laughs) in this field. I've learned certain things about people, but I believe there's something else that's going on here that's under the current of what we, we see as a sociological problem or even a psychological problem. To continue with what I wrote, Uh, the phenomena fascinates me. I will continue to study it on my own, but I will no longer subject myself to being any sort of public voice in it. As I said on a previous show, I find the UFO field to be a goddamn embarrassment. Uh, I'm also interested in other paranormal studies, in particular, the ghost phenomena. But my same stance will be taken. I will study it on my own, for me, and I will not be a public voice in it of any kind, uh, so don't expect me to see to you know turn around and start a, a ghost podcast. Someone asked me about the book that I was writing about my experiences and all of that, and my experiences in ufology. And I have to be honest and say I have little interest in doing it since this community has taken such a distinct downturn. What I wrote here is why would I share anything with this anymore with this community at large? Because it's like trying to paint my own Mona Lisa and throwing it to the monkeys. So what is the point? And here, at the end of my second multiple years of involvement, I have lost friends I cared about, become depressed, frustrated, and sensibly maligned. Big reward. There have been big connections that I will hold on to. Colin Andrews, Mark Nesbitt, Bruce McAbee, George Hansen, Dennis McKenna, Jeremy Vaney, and others. Um, There have been these glimmers of awe-inspiring events to me. And instances that Jeremy and I have encountered both together in person and together on this show. And I think the most – I mean the, the most recent thing that I could say would be Colin Andrews' episode. I think that something happened. I don't know what happened, but something, if you listen to that show, was in the air. So there is something here. And then I go on to write, however, it doesn't want to be found. And it aggressively defends its agenda, whatever that might be, by throwing you and your life and personality as well as many others into complete disarray. This thing feels more like Caesar watching the gladiators being bound, burned, and dying by the sword for entertainment than any sort of enlightenment to me. Terence McKenna once said, the UFO is not for your amusement, but it is for your transformation. Well, my answer is, it may not be for our amusement, but I believe we might be its amusement transformation might occur, I can say that in my time in it, I think I've grown somewhat because of it. To what degree? I'm not sure. I've learned a lot about me and and about people, but I weigh the worth, and I feel like I'm drastically shortchanged, and maybe that's my own perception. Uh, Jeremy is spiritually more attuned than I am. I'm sure that's where I need to work. My personality is simply not conducive. To, UFO, to the UFO field. I quit this once before due to many reasons from aggravation to threats to real-life repercussions. I came back. I can assure you all that will not happen again. And I have again learned my lesson. You cannot thrive in this community doing solid work as this is not, is what, is not what is desired. I can no longer withstand the sound of the wind after two decades on this wasteland. I'm going home. I'm also going to investigate the ghost phenomena, which has taken a decided front seat in my mind as a more hands-on direction of study. But I will not be a prominent figure in it. I think David Roundtree just what he just said about, you know, I, I essentially asked him, "How do you survive in this? How do you deal with it?" And his answer was, "Put your head down and do the work." And uh, that's what I intend to do. And if I have any, if I have anything to say about it, uh, if I encounter something new or a new wrinkle of some sort. Uh, I'll say it. I'll say it publicly, and then I'm out again. <laughs> it's not going to be a hang around for me. So, in, in 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 closing this all out for me, I just want to say to our audience, thank you for uh, supporting me and Jeremy in this. Um, I wish every single one of you, you know, peace and a good life. And I, I thank you for your counsel, your friendship, your support all this time. But there are people I want to mention by name. Uh, Colin Andrews, who I believe is a man of huge integrity and truth, and a guy, I might add, who's willing to look past the paranormal, quote-unquote, and think about his own field of study in different ways. And these ideas and these ways may not be the popular belief system du jour, but he has the courage to stand up in front of a crowd in Washington, D.C., and say it point blank and damn the torpedoes. And that's to be commended, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Bruce McAbee who inspired me to do image analysis and was always there for talk or advice in the field. Uh, he's another guy to me that has immeasurable integrity and, and, and amazing intelligence. And so I, I genuinely thank him. And here's one that's going to amaze everybody. <laughs> Dave Biedney. Uh, you know, despite that we had this very public and vicious falling out, David and I had some very deep discussions that were ultimately beneficial to me on many levels. We were far from agreeing on everything, but that said, uh, our own personalities probably were the origin for our falling out. But I also count our friendship, in many ways, another casualty of this field's relentless coliseum of discord. We both at one point, during the worst of the fighting, and I'm sure everybody probably remembers that, we stopped and we said, there's something else going on here, and something else is involved that's making this far worse than it ought to be. And here's a clue. It wasn't Jeremy. It goes back to that same thing that we've talked about ad nauseum, that this field seems to thrive on chaos, discord. It's not good for relationships. That's for damn sure. And so uh, I think uh, I think in thinking about this the past week or so, that I feel so far removed from that whole disagreement with, with Dave Biedney that – you know, I think back on it, and I'm like, it really was a lot more vicious than it should have been for a disagreement or a misunderstanding or whatever it was. I don't think either side helped matters very much, and and I'll definitely admit to that. Uh, but I think something else was at work there. I mean, everybody can disagree with me if they want, but I, I genuinely believe that. And Jeremy Vaney, my long-standing friend and co-host, who I will continue to work with privately. Um, I'll tell you, you know, if any of you get to be friends with Jeremy, you'll find out quickly that he is a rare bird. Tweet, tweet, Jeremy. He will never lie to you to make you feel better. He'll tell you like it is, and he'll add in tangents and possibilities that you never even thought of. Uh, He's an incredible thinker, and being that we're both kind of deviating out of this field, I feel that legitimate thought in this field being put forth is now at a, a loss without him. So um, it also bears mentioning that I have to thank uh, Mark Allen and everybody over at Above Top Secret for also their support in, in things. I mean, Mark and uh, the main owner, Skeptic Overlord, he'll appreciate that. They both r- really supported me doing um, visual work for them and uh, put me on to a lot of interesting things. And so I appreciate all the support that they gave me, too. But uh, you know, my last story to you guys is going to be pretty much what I told um, a guy who wrote me. I think he was 20 years old. Said he'd followed me from ATS to Paratopia, and he listened to the Paracast episodes and all of that. And uh, you know, he wanted to know what to do to get involved with this. He wanted to know where do you start? What do you do? He's tired of reading books. He's tired of watching videos. He wants to get involved. And I gave him some, you know, look in your local paper, talk to your local police officers about sightings and stuff like that, and even if it's going so far as to, you know, put an ad in the paper or to join MUFON or whatever. So there's a lot of ways that you can get involved, but my own personal view would be for you to run away from it. Uh, run from the desire to become involved in this. If you are a person, I mean, he he... He basically described himself as someone uh, who was uh, skeptical, critical, really was a fan of this show and of the Paracast, which I think are the two shows that have – and maybe I'm being lofty with this. But I think that that between both shows, I think we've put the screws to not only practices but people in this who are not on the up and up Um, and – and he seems to be a fan of that. And I thought, you know, here's a, here's a perfect chance to make someone avoid what can be a really rough road um, that doesn't offer a whole lot back to you. Uh, and so I told him, run, because this is what you'll encounter. And if you're not going to run, here's what you need to be aware of, that ultimately you may gain something out of this, but you will lose a lot in return. I mean, this is this is – I feel like almost in certain ways it's counter to what Jeremy um, talks about in regard to the phenomena, what it, mu- what it might mean, what it might be trying to do. But uh, it, this is the way I feel about it. I don't, I don't think it's evil. I don't say it's evil. I just say it is what it is. I still say when people ask me, is it real? I still, I still say you know, that depends on what you mean by real. Out of all the people that we've talked to, I think George Hansen has the best handle on it out of many and uh, and it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing to solve or resolve into what he's come to with it. So um, I think ultimately I'm taking his advice, which was, you know, well, George, where do we go from here? <laughs> and Jeremy, his answer was give up, you know, because you can't. And so um, I'm not going to lie and say it doesn't fascinate me, but as far as being a public— speaker on this or something like that. I'm just not finding it to be rewarding anymore. And uh and I've run out of directions for myself. Uh so your last five episodes are gonna be with Jair. And then uh and then we're gonna take it into the user generated content. I will still be involved. I mean we're still gonna do our specials every now and then but it's gonna be in and out. It's not gonna be um any kind of consistency at all for me at least. So that's it. That's my goodbye to the, uh, the ufological community, I guess, because there's really nothing more for me to, to, to say. So that's it. I'm done.
0: Bye. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, Uh, Well, then, you know, like, like you said, I'm sticking around. I've got a few more, I feel like it's the end of Lost, you know, where I need to, A, tie up some loose ends and B, sure. throw out some new threads. Um, and I have a bunch of – well, it's interesting. We've got five episodes left. I think some of them are going to be dream episodes for certain listeners and the last mm-hmm. one is a dream episode for me. And I won't be telling you who any of these people are because I don't want Psycho Show to, like, try to call them up or something. Be like, don't do this show or <laughs> um, But I just want to – I don't want to leave on a – and an angry note or whatever note. Um, I want to leave on this note, Jeff, which is to say that it has been my privilege as the cliche goes, (laughs) my (laughs) honor and privilege. And it's true to have done this show with you. And I think if there is such a thing as important podcasting, I think we at least got to touch a few different levels of that. Oh yeah. From, The just hard nosed reporter, rational Emma Woods stuff to the uh, we're touching high strangeness Colin Andrews stuff, yeah, to forcing certain people in ufology to um think in different ways <laughs> and to tackle different subjects than they normally yeah. do on shows,
2: yeah
0: um and to bring new people in in you know really deep ways, and you know scientists and stuff um yeah. So I I think we've done good here in in 65 episodes.
2: Oh, I do too. Yeah.
0: Um, And I just think that you are... (laughs) And here's where I try not to cry.
2: Don't cry, Jeremy. (laughs) Don't do it. This is going to ruin the show. Uh, (laughs) We got to laugh.
0: I really think that you're an amazing person. Well, thank you. Personally and in this field. Mm. I think anyone that has the sorts of experiences that you have and you know what they all are and they're all, you know, in the forefront of of your brain. Sure. um, And you have not (laughs) taken full financial advantage of that and you have (laughs) not started a cult of celebrity around yourself or a real cult around yourself. Right. um, I think that takes a lot of – I don't know what the word would be. I don't know if it's bravery or... Sanity? <laughs> Sanity, yeah. Well, a lot of um, working against your own best financial interest. I mean, you're somebody who could be that guy. Um, mm. And you're not. And I think that speaks highly of you and and makes you completely credible to a lot of people. It doesn't make you credible to me because you just are credible to me because I know you. <laughs> um,
2: yeah. Well, you've been to the house i
0: I haunted the fart chair
2: yes, yes
0: um, uh, so and I want to say that that even though you claim to be in this for selfish reasons mm-hmm. and that's partly true <laughs> and, yeah it is. and and healthily so mm-hmm. um you've nevertheless done a lot of great for a lot of people, and we've seen that reflected in emails
2: oh I hope yeah
0: and um and for me as well. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I hope that um, I hope that what I read and and said and talked in between, I hope that that didn't. Um, I I don't mean to put anybody off and say that nothing I've done has been worth it and it's all been one huge failure because I don't I don't think that at all. As I said, I've gained some things about this, and I've said before that yeah, you know, and I told this young man who wrote me the same thing. I said you will learn next to nothing uh, about the phenomena itself. Uh, which should be your main focus, not the personalities. I said, but you will learn volumes about you. You will learn volumes about what you fear. You will learn why you fear. Um, you know, I never, you know, growing up, I never thought I had control issues and 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 all of that. I never thought that that's what that was. But now I realize that how is it a guy that plays in metal bands all through the 80s doesn't do a single drug, and doesn't get falling down drunk, and doesn't do all those things that you're supposed to do when you're that guy, and that's because you you fear losing control, and um, and I think that that is a that's a big lesson for me. But I think I mean when I look at, at the at the whole thing, I do think that I've learned um, again. I, I've learned that this field, um, and I'm and I'm when I. When I say the UFO field, I mean just this field because I don't know really anything about the ghost community and how they work and what it's like. But from what uh, David and Steven just told us, it's, it's not dissimilar. They have their Billy Myers, too. But it's sure as hell from the outlook seems a lot more friendly to me. <laughs> um and I think it probably would be would be easier to ignore the nonsense and not have to fight it and not have to worry about it attacking you. Well, I think uh, everyone
0: gets that. Yeah, you know? I, don't, I, I don't certainly. Think anyone thinks you're like bah humbug? I'm leaving this field. No, I, I don't.
2: Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I know some people might take it that way. People do hear sometimes what they want to, but but well, you I you do believe
0: saying, bah humbug. I'm leaving this field. But you're not saying bah humbug. I I got nothing out of anything. this. Anything? You know, I didn't help anybody. You no, know, any
2: but I, I got very little out of you know, what's it about? Um, but you I got- sure
0: did control my, uh, my my emotionally telling you how much I'm going to miss you by interjecting and trying to make it all about how something else. So right. I, I'd like to thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> One last control before you Yes, there you. it is. Uh- <laughs> no, fuck you, dude. I, I, I'm going back to this because I want to tell you right. that I love you.
2: Well, I love you too
0: and um and like i said it's it's been an absolute privilege to do the show with you and to be your friend and for that i have uh david pianni yeah. to thank actually well and that's certainly not going <laughs> to
2: i mean I, and again this is not uh and i've said to jeremy uh in emails and on the phone i said you know if ending this show i hope this doesn't mean that we're not going to be on the phone every day and that we're not going to be doing projects together of of one sort or another you know i still we 're still going to do all these things, so this is not like an end of our friendship or anything like that, you know, which, which ultimately concerns you. but uh, you know this is all about really just uh, I mean sadly enough, with, with when I think back over the money that I 've dumped into this subject, the time. And not just time, not just like weekend days, but like literally taking off of work for three days and going to golf breeze or the the strain that it's put on my marriage and the strain that it's put on me as a dad, you know, that that all makes me feel I don't know, I get sick at my stomach when I think about it because I always talk about taking a step back, but I don't take my own advice a lot of times because of that. I don't I don't actually do that. Uh, and when I do, when I take the huge step back and look at what I've been doing, it is a loss of control. It's a loss of, you know, what, how much do you study something before it becomes um, distasteful to your life? And then how much do you come home and um, and vent to your wife about who said what about whom that day? I mean, is that always going to be the topic of conversation? And my lovely wife said to me uh, on the phone yesterday, because I was so pissed off at everything. And I said, you know, I don't even know that I'm, you know, going to finish out 70, 70 episodes. And she said, I wish you would stop. And this is a woman who has relentlessly supported me for 23 years this year in this. And, um, has never whined once about it. And, and you know, and I'll make this uh, I'll make this uh, revelation before I go in that this field and, and circumstances in it uh, separated us for six months, uh, ten or more years ago. And so the thought of almost losing my wife to this uh, because of my involvement in it and where it led me uh, was not good. And of course, I would never let something like that happen again. But uh, that's how bad it can get. And so you have to weigh what toll it takes on you versus what are you getting out of it. And for me, the past month or so, it's been light, uh, very light. And, and in just realizing that, that's why uh, I made the statement to Jeremy, you know, um, I just don't, I don't think uh, I've got any more to say. And Lisa made the comment to me, Jeff, there's nothing wrong with leading a normal life. There's something to be said for that. And she's right. And so uh, I'm going to go play some rock and roll Friday night. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and I'm going to be that guy um, who puts this on a back burner and does it when he has time and thinks about it when he has time. But other than that, I'm going to go play music, I'm going to go do art, and I'm going to do what I want to do. So I'm stepping out of feeling obligated, you know, and that's been a hard thing for me to do. It's not easy to walk away from, you know, all this time and all this money and all this effort and all this time away from family and all of that. It's not easy to put that down and go, okay, I need to step away from the table. (laughs) That's really not easy to do, but, but that's... That, that's that's what I feel I have to do, um, and so I think everybody can understand that, on some level, at least part of it. But uh, let me end it with this: you know, look at uh, and and everybody should think about this when you're in this, when you're involved in it deeply. Think about time, and think about how much you got, uh, and think about the people in your life. Because ultimately, that's what really matters. All of this shit, really, in the long stretch of things, it's important. But does it matter to you to live? Does it matter? Because we can think about our friend Mac, who isn't here anymore. And you can realize that uh, being young and being healthy and uh, vibrant and a great mind doesn't mean anything. When it's time to pull the plug, it's done. And you're done. And so that's the thing you ultimately have to think about is when you look back over your life, when you're breathing that less breath, what did you do uh, with it? And, and how was it spent? And so that's, that's the kind of things I'm thinking. I'm 43 years old. I just turned 43 on the 14th of April. You know, And I told Jeremy I, I intend to go to 115, but that's not the point. <laughs> um, the point is you need to take stock of your life, and I want everybody who listens to this show – to do that, because that's the biggest thing I've learned is, you know, what's it worth to you? Is it worth all of that and possibly losing things that you care about? Is it worth it? And and to me, it's not anymore. Uh, at one point, it was. You know, when it was standing in the floor staring me down, it was worth it. That's not happening. It hasn't happened lately. I expect it will again. I expect that the, the guy in the black sheet will talk to me at some point again I'm sure but I'm not looking for it I'm, I'm just not going to devote myself anymore like that again so uh, uh, so everybody thank you very much for everything and for listening and for talking and, and as I said supporting this show I think we did good Jer. I think I, I think you got to know when it's going down and I think you know you need to know when to quit and, uh, and for me, it's now. <laughs> so uh, I'm gl- I'm, I'm, I am glad of one thing, that I'm leaving on my own terms, that this isn't the kind of thing where I, I feel forced out or anything. It's, it's completely my decision to do this. And nobody's, you know, My wife's not saying, quit or I'll leave you. I'm leaving because I choose to. And, um, and, and that's, that's how I leave it. So thank you, everybody. And, uh, and I'll see you around.
0: Go find your bliss. I will see you in five episodes. ding. <laughs> Thank you and good night.
2: Yes.